Welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Hard News on Friday nights at BBS Radio Station One. We have graduated folks, so we have new people here who are tuning in. We welcome all of you. So let's take a few moments to go into our heart space and set the tone for the evening. So let's hear that heart call drumbeat. Take a few general breaths. Breathe in through your nose. Exhale through your mouth. Nice and slow and gently. And go into that heart space. And gather there with your guides, your guardians, your spirit teams, your healing teams, your ancestors. There's a council fire in the center. So let us come towards that council fire as the settle in that heart space. Gather around this council fire and come in close in that virtual way they know how to do as we complete that circle around the council fire. And now let us do the prayer of the seven galactic directions in the Mayan tradition. We welcome from the east the house of light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us so that we may see all things in clarity. We welcome from the north, the house of night. May wisdom mature among us. So that we may see everything from within. We welcome from the West the House of Transformation. May wisdom be transformed into right action so that we might accomplish what must be done. We greet from the south, the house of eternal sun. May right action give us the harvest so that we might enjoy the fruits of the planetary being. 
We greet from above the house of paradise, where the star people and the ancestors gather. May their blessings reach us now. We greet from below, house of the earth. May the beating of the crystal planet heart bless us with its harmonies so that we might end war. We welcome from the center force of the galaxy, which is everywhere at once. We everything recognized as the light of mutual love. Ayu, Hunaku, even Maya, even Hope. Ayu, Hunaku, even Maya, even Hope. Ayu, Hunaku, even Maya, even Hope. All hail the harmony of mind and nature. Home, Takuyaki, in Makesh. So let's just stay for a moment with that drumbeat took you to be in that place. And today is the first day of a new wave, the blue magnetic storm, Kawak. So <clears throat> I'd like to share with you from Space Station Plaza. If I can find it like I know how to do. And Spot as it described it so well. It's a, a piece from Ariel Silberry and her partner there. So the blue sp- storm waves fell. Storm warning. Here comes the thunder beating. The blue storm waves fell. is the seventh waves fell of the dream cell journey. And the third waves fell of the white northern castle of crossing. Blue storm is the most power-filled and energized of the 20 solar fields in the dream cell, affording a great well of powerful energy to be catalyzed and transformed for a renewed purpose. The thunder beams wield the power of Mjernir, the hammer of Thor, the Norse god associated with thunder. Mjernir is depicted in Norse mythology as one of the most fearsome and powerful weapons in existence capable of leveling mountains. As such, we have divine powers to overcome the forces of evil and darkness as the lightning illuminates the skies and electrically charges the air, clearing the pollution and giving us life-enhancing fresh ionized air to breathe into our being, revitalizing our bodies. Where there was darkness, now there is light. The sign of storm comes from the original Mayan glyph of Kawak, 
which signifies storm, divine rain, thunder, and rain. This glyph is part of the Mayan myth of creation, which is represented by the three turtles carrying the sign of Kowak on their shells. So if you look at the symbol for Kowak, you will see that it's the same pattern that's in the middle, down the middle of the back of the turtle. There's three of them. So exactly before life emerged on Earth, our planet was under heavy rains, which formed the oceans. Thus, the storm represents the necessary transformation that occurs before the new creation, which symbolizes the change of paradigm towards the evolution of consciousness. The rains wash away the old perceptions. The divine ray represents the new revelation, precisely in the dream self transcreation of the mind's opening, the storm is the catalyst of the transformation and also the energetic power, which manifests the self-generation in order to attain the new beginning. The blue storm invites us to let go of the old paradigm and explore the new one in order to fulfill our transformational purpose on earth and attain higher consciousness. So the themes of the blue storm. Kwok brings forth the winds of upheaval, the power of transformation and self-generation and the cleansing rains of purification. Kwok is the final surrender, activation of the light body, initiation by fire, reunion, and the ecstasy of freedom. Kowak is the change engine and the catalyst that heralds the new. To birth anew, one must make space in the void and generate great electromagnetic forces to spark the new life being brought forth with this powerful energy. Kowak will forcibly clear any stagnation and push anything in its path with tremendous force. Hurricanes have the power to lift automobiles and uproot trees and buildings and transport them many kilometers through the air, landing on new terrain. So get ready for a wild ride. You can navigate these forces consciously and funnel them with your intent. Otherwise, you will be buffeted in the chaotic path of this way. For the masses that have not awakened, they will be challenged in order to evolve. There may be a period of confusion until the dust clears and clarity is regained to find the path forward. Be prepared to be the guide, scout, and way shower. Offer them a helping hand out of the t- turmoil. We all need to fearlessly embrace change as a grand new adventure leading, to a, leading us to a new untold pleasures and excitement. The pioneering spirit is one we all need to adopt during this evolutionary ascension phase that we are currently traversing. No, the blue storm waste cell usually heralds the arrival of more turbulent and prevalent weather anomalies and earth disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, landslides, volcanic eruptions. Sky is expressing her emotions through releasing all her pent-up energy, frustration, sustain, anger, and angst. The next 13 days is a very active cycle for release, removing the valve and allowing the stagnant energy to be gone. As we are one with Gaia, and we may experience this in tandem with her both personally and collectively. After we 
have all had a cathartic cry, we will all feel much better, purged and purified, in order to shine brighter. Blue Storm also brings forth electrical and creative energies, which can be harnessed to ignite our ideas. Indeed, this race spell is one which Nikola Tesla would cherish. Nikola chose to be birthed during one of the most intense and active electrical storms his parents had ever witnessed. He had an extraordinary fascination and obsession with lightning and electrical forces, which sparked his inventions and creative genius. So use this test with energy wisely to fuel your new creation into form. All this potent energy has been freed up through the power of blue storms to now be funneled into new projects and ideas designed to afford great planetary change and transform the lives of Earth citizens. So go forth and create beloved star bliss bliss <laughs> and uh, play on words there. So so star beings, the affirmation is, is, is this. I am purifying and transforming myself, igniting my light body, and healing all separation. I call out to you, my light body self, to embrace the lightning strike of the thunder beams through my pilgrimage into the unknown, through the purple flames of transmutation. I return to a home I never left. And that is from the Mind Oracle Aerial Spillway and Michael Dana, that, that last part. And the rest is, I'm not sure who made those comments. But then it's from Space Station Plaza, and I'll share the affirmation as co-opted self-generation energy and catalyze, and the magnetic tone is purpose, attraction, and unify. I unify in order to catalyze attracting energy. I feel the matrix of self-generation with the magnetic tone of purpose. I am guided by my own power doubled. So there you go. That's all about co-opting this new wave. And it is the middle wave. It's the seventh wave. And that means, as we're 13, it is the middle one. And so we're in the middle of the, um, the smoking, the matrix, the, the loom of the Maya. And, um, yeah, so this is <clears throat> that co-op energy. And, uh, and it's a visionary aspect, and I think I've described it enough with what I just said. So I'll move on to Saturday as we experience this way through the Lion's Gate. <laughs> Saturday, is, and oh, I, I do have to mention, though, that this is the, the fifth day of the month of August, and we are celebrating Tar's birthday today. So we're glad to for her to make this trip around the sun and making a new one as we as we begin this day, a new trip around the sun. Uh, let's celebrate Tara and all that she does and brings forth for us. So on Saturday is sixth of August. So we're looking at a house, the sun, and it's a two, so it's the lunar uh, the lunar sun, the yellow lunar sun. It's a healing aspect. And how the sun is always about rising to Christ consciousness. So we strive towards wholeness and we 
we're transmitting energy to others with this with this energy tomorrow. So let's embrace these gifts of that possibility. Thank you. Unconditional love and the God self. As we let go of any limitation or separation. And then on Sunday, it's the 7th, so it's the <clears throat> red resonant dragon, the niche, on Sunday. And the dragon energy means we're starting a new union. And uh, it's an artist aspect. So this this is the work of um, creation and self-dependence and trusting in the in the universe and and also clarity of mind as we embrace these gifts of that being that source of creation. Uh is the dragon and it's the source. It's the beginning. So we have this new beginning. And we're letting go of any illusion of lack of support with this energy. So Sunday, and then moving on to Monday, is the Lion's Gate. And if you look at the numerology on it, it's a six-year, and two-eighths is 16. And so, <laughs> so that's a seven and a six, and that makes a 13. Yeah, so it's Mother's Day. All the way around, eight, eight Lions Gate, and over the thirteenth day, it, it and it is the wind, and it's that electric wind, the red electric. I think I did that wrong. Okay, the red electric dragon this Sunday. So it's the white self-existing wind. For the lion's gate, the support each, the self-existing tone, so that structure. And so she's coming in strong. It's going to be a powerful day with that wind energy. It's a visionary aspect, and you're really working with that co-creation of heaven on earth. So we seek truth in all matters, and no one likes <laughs> mother to bring that. <laughs> this 8-8 day, remembering our unity with spirit. Is our work as well. So let's embrace these gifts of having that voice of spirit and and spirit working through us uh, on this powerful day. So, and let's let's let go of any judgment of others or any secretiveness as we embrace these energies on this Lionsgate portal that we will be having with that one that with the wind at our back and segment right there. It's a good one. <laughs> it's Mother's Day all the way around. So looking forward to that. And then moving on to Tuesday, it's the five Ball, the blue overtone night. This is an artist aspect. So it's really working with our participation in our belief and our abundance and, and also our um, learning from our dream time, the real world. So let's embrace these gifts of protection of the night as we are the mystery of life. Let's let go of any self-judgment or any withdrawal as we embrace these energies on Tuesday and then on Wednesday at the sixth con, the yellow rhythmic seed. Con is the healing aspect and it's about our openness to life, to self-determination. It's about harmony seeking. It's about timing. 
And it's about holy knowledge in a tiny little space. We know everything that we need to do. So let's embrace these gifts of possibility and that potential of creation in that seed as we let go of any stagnation, any lack of self-confidence or hesitation, or any lack of trust. And moving on to Thursday, and I forgot to mention, I want to make sure I mentioned that today is a portal day. Thursday is also a portal day. It's the seven, the red resonant surface. So Chik Chong is with us on Thursday, this portal energy. And so we know that the, the um, Monday is also a portal day because it's the gate. It's the A8 Lions Gate. So there's three portal days this week. Today, Monday, and then Thursday. So let's look at this Thursday, the red resonant surface. The warrior aspect. Oh, good. <laughs> so remain open to change and distinguish between body and soul and transmute energy with this serpent ally. Let's embrace these gifts and that motivation to change and instinct and body sensing as we let go of any, uh, any insensitivity or fears about intimacy or any issues about the body or any insecurities. So any blockages by the ego, we need to let go of. So, and then Friday when we come back, it'll be the link of the world, Kini. And so that's the white galactic world bridger on Friday. It's an eight, Kini. And, and Kimi is another warrior aspect. So we're working with forgiveness and working with moving into a state of grace with this energy as we embrace these gifts of being that world bridger and that bridge between the past and the future and transmutation. So beautiful energy you bring into this co-op wave that we're in. Let's let go of that which is no more. Let go of the ego or any controlling behavior or any belief that life is a struggle. Look at that. So there you go. That's the Mayan calendar for the week. Very powerful. Very, what a gift to to read the um, all about Kowak and the energy that brings in that the hammer of Thor coming in <laughs> and all that lightning and Tesla and cash and there you go. We're we're into a paradigm shift and it was. It was spoken about. So let's do it, folks. And I'm going to change my hat now. We are a listener-supported radio program. It's each of us that make it happen. And y'all performed miracles this week because we all got it together to make sure Ronald was able to have his shuttlecraft in a safe way on the highway. So lots of gratitude for that. And um, lots of gratitude for all the ways that you show up. Here's what we need this week. We need $300 each week for the radio. And that's what we need each this week. So $300 is due early, probably, but uh, <laughs> it's what we need. And we're grateful for all that BBS Radio does each week for us, for all of their services. And we're grateful to be on Radio Station 1 tonight. What an exciting new venue here. <laughs> we're on Spotify and all kinds of other places out there. So let's celebrate that. And here's how we make a donation to BBS Radio. You want to go to 
bbsradio.com, and there you click on Radio Station 1 to find our listings for Friday night and Radio Station 2 for our listings for Thursday night and Saturday night. So here they are at on Thursdays on Radio Station 2 is the night at the round table with the panel. As you click on that icon there, it'll take you directly to our account with CBS Radio where you can make a donation using your bank card and any amount. And for tonight here at the Hard News with Tara and Rama on Friday nights on Radio Station 1, is where you want to find that icon, and it's at the 6 o'clock hour, and these are all these times are in specific times. So <clears throat> adjust that accordingly. You'll find um, the hard news on Friday nights with Tar and Rama. So click on that icon there, and that'll take you to our account. And then on Saturdays for the Saturday program, you'll be on Radio Station 2 at the 1.30 hour, the true history, history of Nisera in our galactic origins. So that click on that icon, that'll take you to our account as well. That's how we do it. Thank you for taking that action. We are so grateful to have you come and listen to our programs and be a part of this amazing work that we do here. Uh, and so much gratitude for all of you for making that contribution and participating in that way. Lots of gratitude. So we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and they need um, $300 to cover bills that are due this week, and they need another $300 for their living expenses. So as as that can happen, we're ever so grateful. We are celebrating Tara's birthday today, so that's a real good excuse. <laughs> to not, not, don't, doesn't need to be an excuse to appreciate Tara and what she does. So with lots of gratitude and thanks to Tara and for her life and for being here, we want to make sure they get their bills paid and have living expenses. So that's what we need. So 300 radio, 300 Tara and Rama, and 300 for bills. And that'll do it. So here's how we make it happen. We want to go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the homepage, click on that menu grid, and then you will drop down, look near the bottom to see a donate button or link. Take that link. It takes you to Rama's PayPal account, where you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. So thank you for taking that action. Some of you might have your own PayPal account. And you don't want to click on that link to get there. You want to just go into your own PayPal account and you can make a donation directly to Rama's account there. And that um, address, that email address you need to enter to do that is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And there you can make that gift. And that just eliminates the commercial charges. Either way is perfect. We're so grateful for all your gifts. Thank you so much. Ah, and then what else? Oh, yes. As you're sending something, we need you to let Rama know that you sent something. And that email for Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at Comcast.net. Let them know what you sent and when you sent it. So you can schedule his life. 
And then, um, as you need it, the mailing address is Rom D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, and the zip code 87567. And um, <clears throat> what else? Yeah, that's everything. So the other things I want to give you are two um, web addresses for joint programs that we're involved in is Rainbow Roundtable, and they are Fremont and the Jim Coin. The Fremont address, HTTPS, colon, forward slash, forward slash, www.shopfremont.com, forward slash, T-A-R-R-A-M. And that takes you directly to the 2013 Rainbow Roundtable account there, number 7,000. And then as you wish to participate in the new gen coin, you can do that by going to this address, https colon forward slash forward slash www.newgencoin.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. And I do need to check and make sure that's still it because it has things to New Gen Universe. So if New Gen Coin doesn't work, go to New Gen Universe. Um, I'm thinking that'll still work. I'll let you know for sure tomorrow. I'll check on that. So anyway, um, that that address for New Gen Coin, www.newgencoin with the HTT in front of it, uh, forward slash dot com forward slash T A R R A M or M A R N O R for Marshall North. Either one of those is good and it's a, it's a good program, so I think you'll like it. Anyway, it's that's your option. That's how we're doing it, and um, it's best to go in with a sponsor. So those are two sponsors you can use. And so there you go. So much gratitude for all of you. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. Live long and prosper. I, I'm trying to change. <laughs> Live long and prosper. That's long life and no evil turn the other way. So, um, yeah. So I'm hitting this talking stick. <laughs> oh, my God. It's got the Lionsgate right on it. And it's, oh, it's got Thor's Mazzone in it. Uh, so watch out. <laughs> and it comes with lots of power. It comes with lots of electrical energy and all the rays of the universe healing rays and all kinds of fairies and feathers and little people and lots of dragon energy, fire energy, and some good cat energy as well. So greetings, Tarnella. Here comes Talking Stick with Excalibur attached to it. Inseparable. Greetings. Greetings. All you commanders, eagles, and angels, and all those of you that are here that didn't know we existed before. We are so grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Don and Doug, for bringing us on Station One to join you. I know the audience here is interested in what's up in the zoo as the world is at the moment. And I just want to say that we represent 
bringing through the knowledge of the solution to this empire that's gotten too big for its bridges, you might say. And that's called the National Economic Security and Reformation Act, or NASARA. And that has something to do with the whole globe because of the currency that is the U.S. dollar being the signature currency for the value of every other currency on earth. So as the situation of the economy of the empire of the United States uh, goes through this reformation and the change in the value of its dollar, it changes the value of everything in terms of money in every country on earth. And in the process, any um, shenanigans of empire and the perpetrators, um, let's just say uh, in that movie where that business guy goes on office hours to his, uh, his office and he goes on ghosts. Oh, yes, the movie Ghost. Say that louder so everybody can hear you, Ronald. Yes, the movie Ghost. Yeah, and he finds that his $4 million have a big fat zero in there, and they're all money's gone. And for those who have been behaving like good little ducklings, <laughs> every man, woman, and child, bar super corrupt criminal behavior ones will be receiving $10 million. And then that money will be revalued the following month to, you might say, with the new economy and the new system, that $10 million will be worth $100 million in terms of what it will be able to buy. You can say goodbye to inflation big time. And everything gets re-indexed. And I know well, this sounds impossible and somebody's been having too much to smoke or something if you've never heard of this before. Uh, but Nasara, Rama got, uh, became aware of the people that have been working on the projects in 1980 and I became aware of it in 1986, and then we met in 1991. Uh, and then we stayed with Shield and Sharula, who are interesting people, because Sharula was born in Telos. In 1795. That's right. So 1895, 1995. Okay, so then... Uh, we're in 2022 plus five. That means she's 227 years old in a body. Yep. And Sharula was Montezuma in his previous incarnation, which is a very interesting transition from one incarnation to another. You want to say something about that, Ron? Oh, um, yeah. I thought um, Shield was Montezuma and... That's what I said. Oh. 
Okay. Yeah, shieldless monsoon. That's right. Yeah. There's an actual book out there called The Year One Read. That they wrote together. And it is the actual prophecy of the return of Quetzalcoatl. And in the year 1519, when Cortez showed up and played like Quetzalcoatl, yet Montezuma was expecting Lord Katumi Quetzalcoatl to show up. And things went a little off with the timelines. I kind of think Doctor Who was needed at that point, yet he might have been across the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> Tough times. So I am just imagining that what we are saying, Rama, is that a new timeline is here. It hasn't been formally publicly announced. Yes. And the term by law is called enacted. And yet, it will be publicly announced by a member of the Galactic Confederation of Light. And uh, the Ashtar Command is involved in that. And that means a member, if not Ashtar himself. And this has happened before where a Galactic member of the Federation showed up on the television, and that was in 1977, BBC News. And his name was... Commander Rillon. And he showed up in uh, uh, in downtown London, right? Well, essentially, Commander Rillon took over the airwaves of BBC News and... Prime time prime time and talked for about seven minutes and basically told the world, you know, we've been watching you for many years and we've been seeing the atomic tests that you've been doing and we're here to say no nukes and we mean it. And we're at this point right now where Nancy Pelosi kind of crossed the line here in the last few days. When she took a trip to Taiwan, which the Chinese people consider part of China. And let's say, you know, they are playing heavy saber rattling with these stories right now. And Russia's in the middle of it. And Captain Ashtar has on red alert. And I'll say it again, no nukes. Yeah, so this new dispensation, which aligns the global economy with the galactic economy, if you want to say it that way, which is based in principles of, what do you want to say, Mama? It's based in the, the galactic, Ashtar Command is based in the principles of light, Love, yes. Love, wisdom, compassion, mercy, divine mercy, truth. Uh, how it goes is uh, the first, fall, first law of love is to be calm. And then you go on from there to know. We've got five, six minutes. You can do it if you want. Yeah, but it takes, doesn't take, does it take you six minutes? No. Okay. Uh, so, um, it, it, in order, it's 
the first law of love is be calm. So in that order, and I just want to thank my kids for wishing me happy birthday because our sister Caroline took us out for a birthday dinner. And we went to Santa Fe and did that, and we just got home right before the show. So Rama saw that you did call. So thank you, Micah. Thank you, Chris. And uh, Danny, wherever you are, I thank you for being alive in, in my life. And uh, may you find peace. All of us. So it's the divine truth, love, truth, peace. And that song says, let peace begin with me inside. That's how peace gets shared. And then more people have that inner peace uh, shared in the world. And so it's love, truth, peace, freedom. So those first three qualities bring freedom. That's what really this... uh, United States of America is supposed to represent it's in shabby shape <laughs> and so the Sara law will be enacted and I don't want to say how many O's are in the word soon yet this has been a 13,000 year you might say uh elevation for all of humanity. In other words, it started 13,000 years with the wars in Egypt back then. And that has to do with the time of coming close into the time of, well, the Pharaonic Age. And uh, in particular, uh, a particular Pharaohship of Akhenaten and Nefertiti is very key because they managed way back then in about the 13th dynasty, dynasty, which was, well, it was about in the 1300s BC. But uh, I'm just saying, well, we're talking about 13,000 years, but anyway, but that's 2,000 years here, and then... uh, you know, after Christ, and then there's uh, 1300 BC, that's 3,300 years, but the Pharaonic Age goes back farther than that. But uh, my point is that once we have the freedom inside and we share it, then after that comes justice, and that can be seasoned with divine mercy, wisdom, and compassion. And as we do that, we're right in the process right now. I mean, it's wild because Liz Cheney's father, Dick Cheney, came on the air today, and they've been having ads oh, everywhere. God. And he's praising his daughter and everything, but the criminal this guy has represented in his past. Vader. Uh, well, Henry Kissinger was Darth Vader before him. I know. <laughs> uh, and I'll just say Mr. Fauci's another one. Please refrain from getting any jabs and just praise, respect, thank, and love all the feelings if you already did and send good vibrations to every cell in your body. You can do that consciously. And we were just doing something at the dinner today we had with Caroline 
I was sharing that there's something you can do with the food that you take in. You gotta speak it a little bit, you know, in blah. You gotta use your voice. And three times in a clockwise position, you make a circle around your plate of food. You can do it over the water and anything else you're eating, but the idea is that you do three circles in a clockwise position, and each time you say a specific number of three numbers, which is nine, nine, five. So you go nine and you make a complete circle of clockwise position. Then you take another nine in a clockwise position. And then a third uh, clockwise uh, circle. And then you say five. And if you add nine and nine, that's 18. And five is 23. And that's the master number of all numbers. It represents your twin flame energy. Everybody's got a twin flame. It doesn't have to do with the body you're in. It has to do with the energy of the spirit, the soul spirit that's in that body. And that's a hard one for this uh, bunch here on the planet, but that's the fact. And then, uh, 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 and the three represents the threefold plane. So you're com combining your twin flame energy, two, one, two in one, God is God. God, 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 God is God is whatever you are. doesn't have to do with the shape or the gender of your body. And all this other stuff about that has got to change. And so we're going to go to our conference call now. I just want to say that Rama's message today and come and have a chat with us at our conference call. So Rama's going to give you that number, but I'm going to read this really fast first, which is Rama's message for today. I received a text message from the King of Swords. Rama's got about 44 phone numbers to the Faction Three White Knights. And the Faction Three White Knights have a very interesting story about previous decades since 1949 when this walk towards changing empire to this new dispensation. And that's very interesting. And you can go to our website. RainbowRoundTable.net Yes. And then at the top bar on the home page, click on the word Nasara, and there's a 33-page document there that describes the Sara law and its walk since back in the 49th to now. And all of it is real. And so, again, I so the King of Swords is one of those faction three white knights that Rama's got 44 numbers for. I received a text message from the King of Swords today at 12.09 p.m. early this afternoon. He said to me, I want to wish Tara, your beloved, a happy birthday today. And don't worry about the rugrats. He's talking about the criminal cabal. Everybody should know what that means. I have my eyes on them. And so does divine goddess. And we talk about, and Ra, Rama's going to channel Mother Sekhmet 
when we come back from our break, which is going to about happen about now. Uh, but uh, she's, she is here. It is time for her to, co- quote, collect her children, meaning her wayward children, and end this, quote, unquote, simulation. Think about that term. Stay in the high vibrations. There have been more solar flares today. I will be seeing you soon. Satnam Namaste, Blaze of Violet Fire. So when the King of Swords says he's going to be seeing Rama soon, I mean, that hasn't happened for a while. <laughs> a good while. <laughs> many, many. What? How many years since you've been seeing the King of Swords? A long time. I mean, didn't you go somewhere with him, or was that Tom the Cat when you went to Washington, D.C.? I was with Tom the Cat. Oh, that's another one of those factions to be white nice. Well, come and join us, Rama. Give us the phone numbers for the conference call. Um, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. So we will see you there for the next hour, and then we'll be right back here at BBS Radio Station 1, the best radio there is in the universe. And I hope you enjoy what we have to share. Namaste for now. Namaste. See you in a little while.
Precious Heart, thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. On July 22nd, we entered the sun cycle of Leo. This is the day celebrated by millions of people around the world as Mary Magdalene's feast day. 
Mary Magdalene is one of the exponents of our Mother God's comprehensive divine love. On July 22nd every year, she floods the earth through the collective cup of humanity's consciousness with our Mother God's wondrous love. This enhances every particle and wave of life on earth and prepares humanity for July 26th, which is known through all time and space continuums as the Galactic New Year. Mary Magdalene's service to the light also prepares Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her for the pinnacle of the opening of the Lion's Gate, which occurs on August 8th. 8-8 every year. During the opening of the Lion's Gate, the Earth aligns with Sirius and Leo, and a new cycle of time and space begins. During this auspicious time, the Company of Heaven is reminding us of what they revealed when we birthed this new decade. They said that during the next 10 years, Humanity will change the course of history for Mother Earth and all her life. They said that during this decade, 2020 to 2030, humanity will begin developing our latent abilities through which we will literally transfigure our earthly bodies and our outer world life experiences into the heart-based patterns of perfection associated with the fifth dimensional new earth. The beings of light said this incomprehensible transfiguration will be accomplished through a greatly expanded collaboration between the company of heaven and an awakened humanity. Our father, mother God said this degree of collaboration between heaven and earth has never before been attempted. In 2020, due to the monumental shifts that had taken place since the birth of the new decade and the forced global planetary pause, on August 8th, as the opening of the Lion's Gate reached its pinnacle, our Father Mother God breathed Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her through the original lion's gate that pulsates above the pyramid in Giza, Egypt, into the much higher frequencies of the fifth dimensional crystalline solar lion's gate that pulsates in the atmosphere above the new earth. As this occurred, the I am presence of every man, woman, and child on earth was able to fully integrate at an atomic cellular level into our physical, etheric, mental, and emotional earthly bodies. This integration allowed every person's I am presence to have greater access to our earthly bodies and our conscious mind than ever before. For two years now, our I am presence has been intuitively guiding us in ways that have been difficult for us to ignore. 
no longer is the communication from our I am presence just a still, small voice within, striving to be heard above the clamor and chaos in the outer world. This aspect of our divinity is now an ever-present inner knowing and intuitive guide that is not allowing us to comfortably behave in ways that reflect the obsolete fear-based patterns of separation and duality anymore. Of course, we have the free will to ignore the inner guidance from our I am presence. But when we try to do that, we feel the painful results of our thoughts, feelings, words, and actions that are not based in love much more acutely. If you are experiencing any doubt about that statement, the company of heaven said all you have to do is absorb, observe the events unfolding in your life and notice how those events are affecting you both mentally and emotionally. Now, in August of 2022, we are once again on the threshold of the opening of the fifth dimensional lion's gate, which will occur on August 8th. Throughout this incredibly powerful year, day by day, we have been guided through various activities of light that have prepared humanity, the elemental kingdom and mother earth at an atomic and subatomic cellular level for the next step in our ascension process. The I am presence of every man, woman, and child is now standing in readiness to receive in new ways the light that will flow through the fifth dimensional lion's gate on August 8th. This light will exponentially intensify the strength and courage within every person's heart flame, thus preparing all of us for the next phase of our ascension process. The lion's gate is guarded by two magnificent lions that represent the lion of yesterday and the lion of tomorrow. As we pass between these lions on August 8th, during our annual passage through the fifth dimensional lion's gate, we affirm that we are moving beyond any control or manipulation from our past or our future. Rather, we are aligning within the eternal moment of now as we join forces with the heavenly realms to co-create the new earth. This year, as we pass through the portal of the fifth dimensional lion's gate, every person's fully integrated I am presence has been given permission by our Father Mother God to liberate the heart-based patterns encoded 
within the divine wisdom and sacred knowledge in our 12 solar strands of fifth dimensional DNA. This will pave the way for the I am presence of every person to liberate us into the harmony of a higher order of being. This will greatly expand the influence of humanity's I am presence on earth. Through every person's fully integrated I am presence, we are now able to intuitively receive the divine promptings, ideas, and concepts from our I am presence, the company of heaven, and our Father, Mother, God. All we have to do is ask. The beings of light have affirmed that as this profound truth resonates in every person's heart flame, we will be able to transfigure our physical realities into the love-based patterns of perfection associated with the new earth. The most powerful way of doing that is within the eternal moment of now. So as we pass through the lion's gate on August 8th, pay attention to the intuitive guidance of your I am presence. Miracles are waiting to be co-created by you. Dear one, be at peace and know all is well. I love to being with next week. So as you go forward from this weekend, please let it unfold in you all that has been brought to you this weekend and see yourself standing in the center of a spiral 
is connecting you between heaven and earth that unwinds and unfolds information and love and guidance through your breath, through your heart, through the wisdom of your own magnificent sacredness, through the love that exists in this room, in this family, and in all of our families that we touch from here to the beyond, the limitlessness and the expansion of that love as it turns in the center of the spiral of your heart and awakens and unfolds consciousness and healing that becomes a part of you, the you that you have been waiting for, the you that you already are, in the love and the light of the I am. Greetings, dear ones. I'm Crying of Magnetic Service. There is a tradition of more than 20 years when it comes to my partner and channeling. The tradition is that on a two-day event, the last channeling would be heartwarming, loving, short, and simple. We're going to break the tradition. (laughs) And that makes my partner nervous. (laughs) He is comfortable with emotion. He is able to translate so easily the energy of the heart. His compassionate countenance marries with the other side of the veil and agrees with it before he even speaks. And then there's a channel like this one. I'm giving him pictures he doesn't know where to begin and what to say. For two days, this particular group has been given some of the highest-minded principles that exist. Yes, there are other teachers who will give just as high-minded, but the group has been exposed to so much, so many ideas, so much potential, and so much confusion. It is interesting, is it not, in humanity, when a truly brilliant man or woman on a stage, because they are brilliant, because of what they have taught and what they can do, because of the maturity and elegance of their consciousness, when they are asked a question, they answer it brilliantly. And they know they have. 
and they smile and they're satisfied. And when the audience leaves the room, they say, we have no idea what they say. (laughs) (laughs) Often there must be a marriage of communication. And often the most brilliant humanity have matured to a level that is difficult to understand. They have gone beyond three dimensions, even four. I want to review with you, not science, but reality. And in order to do that, we must speak of what you think is science, for we use scientific words. They're not. They're just descriptions of reality. And we have told you one of the most basic truths that exists today. And I want to simplify it even further. Humanity has been in survival. And in that state, they are only partially aware of a multi-dimensional reality. If the universe the galaxy, your bodies, your reality was in an immense hue of colors, you are in black and white. And some of you are discovering shades of gray. Could it be simpler than this? Is there more than you can perceive or think or see or imagine? The answer is yes. Now, let us carry it even further. The highest sciences on your planet, which you would call physical sciences, for many years have been dealing on the outskirts of what we will call multidimensional discovery. It's not new. One of the highest minded thinkers that you could imagine, you called Einstein. In all that he gave you and all that he could imagine and think, he had trouble with multidimensionality. It is indeed true what the teacher Greg said. That on his deathbed, he bemoaned the fact that through his brilliance, he could not ally the forces that he knew about. Could not conceive. And here is the irony. The scientists around him that he did not like had the answer. Today, you call them quantum. When they started the discovery of multidimensionality, they started with looking at particles that were obviously different than your reality. They called them quantum particles. Just a name. A name of reality that was different from yours. It opened the door for questioning what was there. The name quantum stuck, the very idea that a particle could be multidimensional was labeled quantum. That became 
a buzzword, if you would like, for multidimensional things. And we're going to carry on that tradition. Make it simple. You live in a practical world that only includes a few of the dimensions. We even hesitate to count them because they're not countable. They're not really linear. You want them to be. So you gave them names and numbers. There are those that would say that means that we are broaching a new dimensionality. Oh, yes, you are. And then they will linearize it and number them. We're moving into five. Oh, some are really brilliant. They're at seven. And we've told you before, you're still in black and white if you think that way. It's bigger than this. There's a reason why I'm telling you this, and it's going to answer some of the questions in a simple way. They were asked today of the brilliant ones. <laughs> Dimensionality is a soup of reality. With many hues and many shades and you're in the black and white portion moving into the shades of gray. There's no color yet. Not with a general humanity. There are a few brilliant ones who have the color. I've asked this before. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a human being who faces a sightless person from birth. And the sightless person says, explain red. <laughs> they have never seen anything. And they want to see or have the explanation of a concept so much grander and greater than anything they have ever seen or known or experienced, you will not be able to answer. You know what red is, don't you? But you can't tell them, can you? Do you understand just a little of the barrier that might exist between the multidimensional quantum concepts that we are going to talk about and the one you're in, it is the same. So how do you get to the next stage and what is happening? Dear ones, I'm going to make a statement. When you cross the bridge, as you move through the precession of the equinoxes, as the calendar dropped away, as the cycles start to change, humanity is going to be introduced to quantumness. And it's going to be everywhere. For multidimensionality encompasses everything, not physics. Physics is simply the study of the way it works. That's all. But you're going to find it everywhere. And there would be those who say, what's the big deal? And I'll tell you what the big deal is. There is reality in so many levels. 
the man in the shroud. <laughs> what was his reality? Could he walk this planet with a different kind of consciousness that was so elevated and mature that he could manipulate physics, biology, life? Could he speak to nature and have it change? Could he speak to the spark of life itself within cells and rejuvenate instantly? Yes or no? Those of you who believe in the words of the ancients written clearly will know that that is history and the answer from me. Yes, yes. Oh, he was not alone. Those who followed him, even into the current day, could manifest things out of nothing, control over physics. I'm going to make a statement right now on this planet. The highest inventions that are being worked on, that are being manifested, that are being thought of, developed, and used are quantum. There is no invention that is of four dimensions that is meaningful at all. Oh, there will be some. They'll be cute. <laughs> But nothing like what you're working on. Now, let us back up to a channel of a few weeks ago. And I started to describe and define what you're going to discover eventually about something you think is different. And it's called consciousness. Define it in your mind. You'd say it is the way we think. It might be, be identified as our vibratory rate of thinking. Oh, how 3D of you. <laughs> you know what consciousness is? It's the human being's quantum engine. And it's physical. We told you it has rules of physics. That when you started to apply and when you started to understand and when you started to know about how to work with your own consciousness, no one else's, but your own, the moment you begin, you inform every single cell in your body to start shifting into shades of gray. It is automatic because it is expected of an old soul. There have been hints of this, dear ones. We have given you a little physics. We're going to give you a little physics again. You're dealing with basically four laws, what you call laws of physics. We have defined them slightly differently to make it easier for you to understand. 
two of them we have said are strong and weak electromagnetic force. You have relabeled those as gravity and electromagnetics. Not really. They're allied. I'm going to show you in a minute. The second two, the strong and the weak nuclear force. What scientists take a look at, at the core of the atom and examine. And then the two missing ones, which will give you a total of three, four, no, five maybe, (laughs) six, three pairs, will complete it all. The strong and weak multidimensional force When discovered, analyzed, defined, and when finally understood, will even explain what you would call dark matter. There is no such thing. It's simply invisible. Now, let's talk about a brilliant one for a moment to give you just a hint of how science starts to relate to consciousness. His name was Tesla, and he loved magnetics. I told you about him. He came for a reason and left in frustration because he could only go so far. That was all he was allowed to do. Let me tell you what he saw in his laboratory through his eyes. And I've only mentioned it once before. Dealing only with designer magnetic fields that were coarse, without computers, without the electronics kind of elegance you have today, all he could do was flounder in general areas of designer magnetics. But three times or more, he touched on a formula that changed the mass of things on his workbench, and they flew off and hit the ceiling. The astute who examined his workshop, even the preserved archaeology of his workshop today will see pockmarks in the ceiling. (laughs) He didn't discover Anti-gravity, there is no such thing. He discovered the relationship between designer magnetics and the mass of an object. You think mass is stable. You think if something is bigger, it has a higher mass. Oh, how 3D. That's all you've seen. And it gives you something called gravity, which you also don't understand. You know why? Because it's quantum. Magnetics is quantum. You play with it. That's all you do. You play with it. You don't understand it yet. Humanity is starting to work with consciousness. What did you see the good doctor do today? What did you see the teacher Greg settle on? To bring back something he said was old and give it to you again. Do you see how the dots are starting to be connected? Because both of them 
centered on something that is critical, and that is consciousness will change physics. <laughs> and part of physics is biology. The masters gave it to you first. They begged you to watch it. And what did you do? As unelegant humans, literally in survival mode, you worshiped them. You didn't get it. You didn't understand. This could be you. <laughs> and they came again and again and again. And by the way, they're coming again and again. <laughs> Perhaps you'll listen this time and write it down. Consciousness is the key and is the answer to a very esoteric and quantum question. If quantum energy has no real time, if quantum energy can be projected through portions of entanglement, so there's no distance. One of the questions today, how about the law of the inverse square? You know what that is? That's a three-dimensional law that quantum physics ignores. You can send a signal from here right now today to the farthest part of the universe and they'll get it instantly because it's not part of black and white. Are you understanding this? The ones who are receiving shades of gray are starting to develop the receivers that are quantum in their brains. Do you know what spontaneous remission really is? It's the human being who has a triggering from whatever process you want to call it through his akash, through fear, through joy, through survival, who all of the sudden for a moment sees in color and has the ability of the masters and heals himself in minutes. Now, I want to relate to what you saw today, dear human beings in this room, and we're told. What did you see on the screen? Healing in minutes. How do you explain it? What did the doctor tell you about a new system that is purely and totally conscious thought? <laughs> Instant healing. Are you beginning to connect the dots? Here's a question. If you can create a quantum invention whether it's a laser or something else. When you turn it on, why doesn't it cure everyone around you? Here is a simple answer. Because it's quantum and you're not. But those of you who are working on quantum thought, meaning a higher vibrational consciousness, are then the antennas who will receive it. Is that simple enough? If all humanity had the shades of gray moving into color, you could turn the laser on and all of them would be affected. So it is keyed in 
to something we have told you from the beginning that you need and is the king of all things from the other side and it is called free choice. A human has the ability to ask themselves logical questions and develop their own answers. Here's a question, is there something more that you can see? The ones in this room would say yes. The ones outside this room may say no, and my partner was one of them who said, I will only believe what I can see. good message there was so we will say we are all servants of peace did you pay, play that's not one card did okay Greetings, Mother. Greetings. In the light oh, of the most 
radiant light in the office of the Christ and only in the office of the Christ we invoke loving energies of Saint Germain and the Violet Way. And we ask at this time for the deepening of the awareness in the heart of all that is, in all of humanity, in all of the animals, in all of nature, and a connection with this whole universe of Nevadon and beyond, uh, and that the galactics can come closer and they can actually engage, you know, with many more millions of us to assist us and let people of humanity know they are here. And uh, I'm going to include this uh, uh, healing that each one of us is knowing that they are requiring inside of themselves. And may the technology cooperate and uh, discover its own sentience in spite of the noses on the faces of these oligarchs. And our biggest task right now and test is to do with this all with love and peace. And may that be so. Greetings, Mother. Greetings, children of Ra. Indeed, may we do this with love and compassion. Hmm. The stories are wild, and then some, with what's going on. Let's say it's Your friend, the king, he said we're here to collect our children. So, we'll say it is evolving <coughs> a process that's happening right now. As you're seeing all the 13 families in one way or another having to deal with their wayward actions in this present space-time moment. Alex Jones, it's in the faces of everyone. Yeah, in addition to the 48 million, there's two other Sandy Hook families that are separately suing Alex Jones. That's just for starters, everyone. I still have to say that he got $2 billion from the Vatican 
to create a career of lies. Yes. That's what he got. But they're saying everything about that, too, in the courtroom. I mean, they're exposing him for having a, a show filled with lies and making buku bunks, buku bucks. I mean, I don't know, enormous figures, enormous figures of money. It is about the end of this cycle. This is why we're here, along with the folks from Nibiru. Complete the story. It's quite a cosmic dance. <laughs> because... The whole story hasn't been told. They're leaking out bits and pieces of it. That's why this guy watches ancient aliens. There are more things going on than know how to speak about is the completion of this cycle right now our son is the key as it goes through its transfiguration so do we and it's happening right now. This is the reason everything is a bit shifting, changing, moving in ways we are unfamiliar with. challenge to be in this now moment with everything that's happening like this one has said we're being asked 
to step into a place we are not familiar with. We have watched these cycles, participated. This is not the first time we have seen the transfiguration of our son. This is a big deal because it is a whole civilization waking up mm -hmm. and Commander Cryon speaks of this where hmm, right at this time all the various we could say members of the Galactic Confederation have converged here now. This is the main story in this little sector of the Alpha Quadrant. Love is the answer to all the situations going on. Like we played this message from our Sikh sister. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Right now, the dark side is holding their CPAC convention, metaphorically speaking. Yes, their speaker of speakers is Victor Orban of Hungary. And we could say we have seen ten horned dictators come and go <laughs> across the galaxy. This is not new. No. There are some out there that remember the Orion story. It's a long, long time ago in a galaxy not so far, far away. Yet do they heed the lesson, Mother. It is at this time, we could say. I mean, we were witnessing, witnessing us murdering millions and millions and millions of beings. How can that, for 5,000 years, doing that for 5,000 years? Ah. Did somebody lose their memory? <laughs> Let's say this is the place, this is the time where it shifts and 
Saul is the key to this story. Also, a few other planetary players, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, Persephone, Vulcan. There are places in this, our very own solar system. Our uh, so-called scientists haven't talked about our neighbors. And it's time we meet each other in peace and love and graciousness. It's what's happening in the context of, we could say, the force in of itself has created this opportunity for humanity to take a higher path. Oh yes, a mother, I, I think so, and it's, it's required, isn't it, for the Vatican to be completely held accountable. Caroline was mentioning that, you know, they're saying in Canada they said that the Vatican was responsible for murdering 4,000 children and Caroline was saying at least 100,000 children. And again, I just remember Amy saying, take the figure that's out there and multiply it by 10 and you might get close. So a million children, that's not hard to believe at all. No. Not with the nature of the Vatican. So, I mean, dismantling the Vatican... I think that Orthodox churches got a good start, but all these organized religions got to go, and that includes the Orthodox Church, right, Mother? They do not represent the teachings of the captain or the admiral. Right. <coughs> well, so don't they have a requirement in their time-space continuum to show up? The word has gone out. Uh, expect us for high tea is what we could say. Uh, giving an hour. Expect us, as Anonymous says. Anonymous. Yes. Remember them? You mean Anonymous 6? Anonymous. The folks who do the hacking. On the computer? You must remember a group called Anonymous. Oh, that's St. Germain. Yes. Yes, that was Carlton. He asked that. He asked the main question on the conference tonight. 
Who is going to do this? Who's going to dismantle this bunch of crooks and murderers? This character. Satan remains in charge of getting the Sara enacted into law is all the answer I know. He was the architect for this story called The New Atlantis, which is called Turtle Island, North and South America. Or the, the New Atlantis. Yes. That's written in a document that St. Germain actually wrote called Novum Ornum? Novum Organum. Organum? I forgot the name of that document. Novus something. No, no, Novum is the first word. Yes. Anyway, we got to look these things up. We're getting rusty. We talked about this so long ago, but. Yes. It's time for the fifth dimensional ascension frequencies that are already here. You know how that wise saying goes, use them, lose them, or reduce them. <laughs> I know they weren't saying it in reference to what I'm talking about, but it works. Yes. And we need to kind of maybe re-research some of the things that we already said. It's about this present moment we call now, which the truth is coming out about our wayward children, Sumeria, the folks with the wings that weren't exactly nice folks, some of our wayward children, not all, turn to the dark side. A lot more than everybody knows, everybody. It's, yes. But we got to play that song again, too. Mr. Cohen, everybody knows. Everybody knows. And we got to play that other one, too. Democracy is coming to the USA. He may be on the other side, but his music still is it's on, on the, the money. money. <laughs> Thank you, Mother. Fist bump onto that one. <laughs> it's Everybody welcome. Mother segment is um, S-E-K-H-M-E-T. She was here before the gods were. You want to say a little bit about yourself, Mother? We came here with the other great silent watchers eons ago to help propagate life forms throughout the galaxies, seven super universes. Mm -hmm. The other super universes are in antimatter. This one is the matter universe. As we learn more... It's the only one of the super universes. Seven, yes. That's a matter universe. Yet, this is a privilege, it's an honor, it's a absolute blessing to have been able to choose to manifest in this form at this time, to be it present. It is a gift. Yes. This is why this... Right here 
this temple, like the man said, it's a keeper. And go to ascend with it. This is the deal. How we transform, transfigure this into living love, living light. Is what His Holiness Kundu Dalai Lama is telling us every single day as we're looking at these folks in CPAC. Have some compassion and forgiveness for them, for even though they know what they're doing. Well, they don't really know what they're doing, or they'd never do it, Mother. They uh, really wouldn't. Yes. It is quite a cosmic dance. Like Dante said, humans got its problem with something called stupid. (laughs) As Don Juan was very wise, still is. What was the name of that book where he spoke? Mm. Wow. Carlos Castaneda. Carlos Castaneda. I don't remember the name. The though. Eagle's Path, maybe. I'm not, not sure. sure. Yeah. Very wise path. Yeah. It is this moment that what we can say. Because the stories, all the myths, all the legends are coming into full play and full circle. The wisdom of the ages is showing up on planet Earth. Yes. To replace stupid, Mother. We never needed to die, get sick, or grow old. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean... That, I mean, I hear people say stuff, you know, well, then all these other people, I mean, if we never, if nobody died, then we're going to have 20 million, I mean, 20 billion people on the planet, 40 billion people on the planet, not dying. That's not how it works, right? It's about moving into higher levels awareness. Finding out what joy is at a higher level of awareness besides who can we F-U-C-K next? (laughs) Yes. Uh, When you merge with the consciousness of a mountain or the consciousness of a sunflower, it is like what Chief Seattle said. Every part of this earth is sacred to our people. Absolutely. It is. This is a gift to be here. Like we have said many times. As we complete this story. 30 days or less, give or take. We're going to have this place back in shape. It will be as if none of this occurred. And it takes all of us to do it. 
we are going to be taking our wayward children on a little ride to stand trial on Draco's. And then they will get their just uh, deserved work to rectify their past. We're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> no. And this is not a legend. This is all real. Real. All the ancient teachers, masters, wise councils of elders are here as we learn more about our ancient civilizations that come into play right now. It helps us transform, transfigure these temples, these bodies of living love, living light. As Patty speaks about so many others, we are turning to living crystalline-based life forms rather than carbon. And as we talk to the crystal kingdom, they will talk to us. It's that simple. All the realms are here. Five elements, earth, air, fire, water, ether. Like you saw in the movie Alator. whole planet will speak to you, interact with you. This is why we are here now, along with trillions of other life forms. We only come in peace. Yet the answer is love. And it is about awakening the rest of the story. As right now, there's something going on with the quantum field. More and more folks are interacting with the quantum field. And there are anomalies happening. People waking up out of the blue, shattering the matrix. Mm -hmm. It's happening every day more and more. As the wisdom that's coming forth, how to take care of these temples and take the time to have meditation, being able to work with the five elements so that you can hear the sound 
the oneness, the force. You can hear it. It will speak to you. Just got to listen. It's called the music of the spheres. Yeah. It's always been here. Human resonance, by the way, today, yeah. off the charts again. All those white lines getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's about this. In the human resonance pictures, there's whole wide bands of white now. Yes, every day more of those white bands. This means we are nanoseconds away from the singularity happening. This is the transfiguration of our sun. It's a really big deal. A really big show, as they say, huh, Mother? Yeah. I mean, you've been here before time was here, so what What do you see there? What? What's your perspective on? It is about how the light pouring forth from the sun changes our very DNA and the nature of all of life whether it is animal, vegetable, or mineral, we're all interrelated, Mm -hmm. the circle of life. Mm -hmm. And right now, we call it the force that is speaking to us with that voice of trillions of life forms that are saying this is the time this is the place you want to ascend you do it here you do it now it's having compassion for whatever may have occurred in your life story in any space-time continuum. And it is quite a cosmic dance to behold as you read the Akashic Records. We can all do this for ourselves. As you ask, it will speak to you. Let you know what you must learn to get to the next step. Well, Rama, Mama, Rama, Rama, Mama. Yes. Um, I mean, you're the only one around that has the perspective that you have since you've been here before time. Aren't we moving from time to no time at the moment? Yes. And are we talking about what? Another hundred years? Another ten years? We're talking about right now. 
<laughs> no see. dates, but right now. Yeah, all time is now. That's and right. how you work with that now moment is when you get to a place inside yourself where you feel that stillness uh-huh. and you're in that place of oneness was all that is and there's only one of us here Donald Duck and Donald Trump and everything in the middle <laughs> we got ourselves in this mess it is let's say It is about the blending of different realms that are converging on this one. And as you can comprehend how to move through space, time, and the portals that are surrounding this planet and the other areas of the four quadrants, of this local galaxy, there are areas, yeah, hmm, that they haven't even spoken about. Uh, an adventure you want to go on, go inside this, the temple here, travel through the millions of miles of arteries and veins in this living goddess, God, all that is, this temple. We know less about our brains than we do about hmm, so many other things, yet time is moving very quickly because there is no time it's about staying in that oneness and just stopping everything being in the oneness and you'll feel it (laughs) you'll feel it this are now mother we better be on our way Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Read it. A lot of the most urgent one. But oh, close, close. Oh, nice. Close, close, close. Oh, nice. Close, close, close. Oh, nice. Ilyahu, 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 Yod Hey, Vod Hey, Yava, Adonai, Vasu, Paradas. Namaste, Mother. I just got to take a little moment, and Rama will be back. And tell us where he was 
This takes just another moment or so. Ah. Mother's taking her leave and Rama's reintegrating back into his body. He might be snoring for a second here. <laughs> He'll be back. <laughs> there you are. Oh. Hi, honey. Mm. Where did you go? Mm, I was... I was on Lady Master Athena's ship, and there was quite a few folks talking in one of the main conference rooms about the situation going on in China and Taiwan. Yeah, that's pretty hairy. They've been bombing from their military ships in the Taiwan, right where they are still allowed to be, but they're not exactly in the Taiwanese waters, but they're bombing. They're live fire bombs, and they're bombing over the island. That's not against, that's against the law, isn't it? I'm not a lawyer, I can't say. Oh, they're saying all over <laughs> that they're violating all the international protocols. I just know that um, they are Lady, furious. Master, Lady Master Athena and Captain Astar and the rest of the folks are here. This is a huge deal right at this moment. Those nuclear weapons better not work. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> Ditto. I guess you agree with me, Rama. Aren't they required to do something now? They are, right? To put it simply, the captain has a plan. Oh, hooray. <laughs> <laughs> the cap captain better start showing me. I'm still from Missouri, mother. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, we better get story number one. Let's do Amy. Um, again, this is for the witnessing of the transition that we're in. So send all kinds of good vibrations to everything that a peaceful means of solutions uh, can be made and acted upon. Thank you, everyone, for this time together to do this. Here we go. Just moving forward just a little bit. Oh. Okay. Now i got to make the sound go up. Thank you. 
and former Louisville Metro Police Department officers with federal crimes related to Ms. Taylor's death. The Justice Department has announced federal criminal charges against four former and current Louisville police officers over their roles in the fatal shooting of Breonna Taylor, shot dead in her home during a no-knock police raid two years ago. We'll go to Louisville for the latest. Then we remember the life and legacy of Albert Whitfox, the former Black Panther who spent nearly 44 years in solitary confinement, longer than any prisoner in U.S. history. He died of COVID at the age of 75 Thursday, six years after he was freed from the Angola prison in Louisiana. I remember reading something uh, from Mr. Mandela in ADCA. You know, of a car, there's no way you can carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. And I thought what we were doing was a noble cause. So we were prepared. And so the beatings and the gassings and the decades of solitary confinement, you know, was really all your pain for the difficult. It never got to the point where they were able to break us. We'll hear Albert Woodcox in his own words and speak to his brother, his attorney, and Robert King, who has imprisoned Angola with Woodcox for decades. The two of them and the late Herman Wallace were collectively known as the Angola Three. All of that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Justice Department's announced federal criminal charges against four former and current Louisville police officers over their roles in the fatal shooting of Breonna Taylor. Her death in a hail of police gunfire in March 2020 sparked protests across the United States and around the world under the banner Black Lives Matter. Former Louisville Metro Police Detective Joshua James was taken into FBI custody Thursday morning and charged with obstruction and civil rights violations. Also charged were Louisville Police Sergeant Kyle Meany, Officer Kelly Hannah Goodlett, and former Louisville Police Detective Brett Hankison. This is the head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark. Breonna Taylor should have awakened in her home as usual on the morning of March 13th, 2020. Tragically, she did not. She was just 26 years old. As Attorney General Garland just stated, today's indictments allege that Louisville Police Detective Joshua James and Sergeant Kyle Meany drafted and approved what they knew was a false affidavit to support a search warrant for Ms. Taylor's home. That false affidavit set in motion events that led to Ms. Taylor's death. After headlines, we'll go to Louisville, Kentucky for the latest on the charges against the four officers involved in Breonna Taylor's killing. The two white officers who actually shot her were not charged. Oh. Ukrainian officials are urging residents to evacuate the eastern Donetsk region and head west under a mandatory evacuation order for thousands of people. The order came as Russian troops intensified their assault on Ukraine's east, where President Volodymyr Zelensky said his troops are facing hell on the battlefield. 
killed. Meanwhile, a new report from Amnesty International finds Ukrainian forces are endangering the lives of civilians by establishing bases and operating weapons systems in populated residential areas, including in schools and hospitals. Amnesty says such fighting tactics violate international humanitarian law. The report drew an angry response from President Zelensky. Aggression against our state is unprovoked, invasive, and frankly terroristic. And if someone prepares a report in which the victim and the aggressor are allegedly the same in some way, if some data about the victim is analyzed, while something that the aggressor was doing at that time is ignored, then this cannot be tolerated. In a statement, Amnesty International said, quote, being in a defensive position does not exempt the Ukrainian military from respecting international humanitarian law, unquote. A court in Russia has found WNBA basketball star Brittany Griner guilty of drug smuggling and sentenced her to nine years in a penal colony. During closing arguments Thursday, Griner took responsibility for bringing vape cartridges containing a small amount of cannabis oil with her through the Moscow airport where she was arrested by customs authorities in February. She said the cannabis was prescribed for medical reasons. President Biden called Brittany Griner's nine-year prison sentence unacceptable and promised to work to bring her home. Earlier today, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said the Kremlin remains ready to discuss a prisoner swap involving Griner and former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan, who's been jailed in Russia on espionage charges since 2018. China says it'll sanction U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her immediate family over her visit this week to Taiwan's capital, Taipei. On Wednesday, Pelosi became the most senior official to visit Taiwan in a quarter of a century from the United States. Her trip prompted China to launch large-scale military exercises in waters around Taiwan that effectively blockaded the island. Pelosi spoke to reporters earlier today as she wrapped up her tour of Asia in Tokyo, Japan, and after China's foreign ministry called her actions vicious and provocative. They will not isolate Taiwan by preventing us to travel there. We've had high-level visits, senators in the spring, a bipartisan way, continuing visits, and we will not allow them to isolate Taiwan. On Thursday, Pelosi led a delegation of U.S. lawmakers who traveled to South Korea and toured the demilitarized zone that divides the Korean peninsula. Her trip came, as the United Nations said in a new report, North Korea has made preparations for a new nuclear weapons test this year, which would be the first such test since it exploded a hydrogen bomb in 2017. Back in the United States, Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema said Thursday she'll support a budget reconciliation bill containing some of the Democrats' legislative priorities on health care and the climate crisis. As a condition of her support, Sinema demanded Democratic leaders agree to abandon a provision that would close the so-called carried interest loophole, a tax break exploited by hedge fund and private equity managers to pay lower tax rates than middle-income workers. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said a revised version of the bill would be released on Saturday.
In Arizona, former TV news anchor, Trump supporter Carrie Lake has won the Republican gubernatorial primary. Lake narrowly defeated lawyer and businesswoman Karen Taylor Robson, who had been the, had the support of Vice President Mike Pence and other prominent Republicans. Carrie Lake put false claims about a stolen 2020 election at the center of her campaign and has said she would not have certified President Biden's victory. Her victory follows other Arizona election deniers who won Republican nominations in Tuesday's primary, including candidates for Congress, Senate, and Secretary of State. The Biden administration's declared monkeypox a public health emergency. Thursday's declaration by Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra comes two weeks after the World Health Organization declared the disease a global emergency. Officially, the United States has recorded nearly 3,000 cases of monkeypox, so the true toll is likely far higher due to severe shortages of testing. New York public health officials have discovered polio virus and samples of sewage taken from outside New York City, suggesting the virus is spreading in the community and that hundreds of people may have already been infected. Officials have tied the polio lineage discovered in Rockland County to recent samples taken in Israel and the United Kingdom. Polio mainly affects children and can sometimes cause paralysis or death. The United States declared the disease eradicated in 1979, but officials warn that unvaccinated people remain vulnerable. Only 60% of Rockland County's two-year-old children have been vaccinated against polio. That's 60%. In Florida, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is facing backlash after he suspended Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren over Warren's promise not to prosecute people who seek or provide abortions in Florida. Warren, who's a Democrat and has been elected twice, condemned DeSantis's move as, quote, an illegal overreach and said his suspension, quote, spits in the face of the voters. DeSantis spoke in a news conference Thursday. Uh, I was shocked at the blatant violation of one of the most fundamental principles of our democracy, that the people, the voters, get to elect elected officials. I've been elected twice to serve the state attorney, and I've served the state attorney, and I've done it well. Crime is down. We're protecting people's rights. We have fought so hard for public safety and fairness and justice. If the governor thinks he can do a better job, then he should run for state attorney, not president. That's Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren. Governor DeSantis signed a bill into law in April that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The measure is facing several legal challenges. The FBI's arrested former Puerto Rico Governor Wanda Vasquez over her alleged involvement in a bribery scheme to finance her 2020 gubernatorial campaign. Vasquez is accused of accepting bribes in 2019 and 2020 while she was governor from several people, including Julio Martinez Bellutini, a banker who is under investigation by the agency that oversees Puerto Rico's financial institutions. In exchange for the donations, Vasquez reportedly demanded the resignation of the agency's director and later appointed a new one, a former consultant of Herrera's bank. Vasquez, Herrera, and a former FBI agent also face wire fraud and conspiracy charges and up to 20 years in prison if convicted on all counts.
In Austin, Texas, a jury has ordered far-right conspiracy theorist and InfoWars host Alex Jones to pay $4.1 million in compensatory damages to the parents of Jesse Lewis, a six-year-old boy killed in the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in Newtown, Connecticut. For years, Alex Jones spread conspiracy theories that the Newtown shooting was a government hoax and the victims' families were paid actors, resulting in online harassment and death threats for Sandy Hook families. The jury is expected to reconvene today to decide how much Jones should pay the parents in punitive damages. And Albert Woodfox, who was... Yeah, and that's what made it go up to $48 million. This was at 6 o'clock this morning, but I'm just letting you know that things happen today uh, to increase from that amount to $48 million and there have been mention of 150 million in the works. Okay. Held in solitary confinement longer than any pres- prisoner in U.S. history has died at the age of 75 from COVID. The former Black Panther and political prisoner won his freedom six years ago after surviving nearly 44 years in solitary confinement. Woodfox and two fellow oh. former Black Panthers became known as the Angola Three after they were wrongfully convicted of murder and retaliation for their political and racial justice activism inside Louisiana's notorious Angola prison. We'll have more on Albert Woodfox's life and legacy oh. later in the broadcast. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace oh. Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Department of Justice has announced federal criminal charges against four former and current Louisville police officers over their roles in the fatal shooting of Breonna Taylor. Her death in a hail of police gunfire in 2020 sparked protests across the United States and around the world under the banner Black Lives Matter. Former Louisville Metro Police Detective Joshua James was taken into FBI custody Thursday morning and charged with obstruction and civil rights violations for knowingly using false, misleading, and incomplete information to get the no-knock search warrant for Breonna Taylor's home that led to her death. Also charged Thursday were Louisville Police Sergeant Kyle Meany, Officer Kelly Hannah Goodlett, and former Louisville Police Detective Brett Hankison. Attorney General Merrick Orland announced the indictments Thursday. Earlier today, I spoke with the family of Brianna Taylor. This morning, they were informed that the Justice Department has charged four current and former Louisville Metro Police Department officers with federal crimes related to Ms. Taylor's death. Those alleged crimes include civil rights offenses, unlawful conspiracies, unconstitutional use of force, and obstruction offenses. A fifth search warrant was for Brianna Taylor's home which was approximately 10 miles away from the West End. The federal charges announced today allege that members of the Place-Based Investigations Unit falsified the affidavit used to obtain the search warrant of Ms. Taylor's home, that this act violated federal civil rights laws, and that those violations resulted in Ms. Taylor's death. Ms. Taylor was at home with another person who was in lawful possession of a handgun. When officers broke down the door to Ms. Taylor's apartment, that person, believing that intruders were breaking in, immediately fired one shot, hitting the first officer at the door. Two officers immediately fired a total of 22 shots into the apartment. One of those shots hit Ms. Taylor in the chest and killed her. 
That was Attorney General Merrick Garland, the head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark also spoke Thursday. The indictment alleges that by preparing a false affidavit to secure a search warrant for Breonna Taylor's homes, defendants James and Meany willfully deprived Breonna Taylor of her constitutional right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. And we allege that Ms. Taylor's death resulted from that violation. In a separate indictment, the grand jury charges former LMPD detective Brett Hankison with using unconstitutionally excessive force during the raid on Ms. Taylor's home. Without a lawful objective justifying the use of deadly force, defendant Hankison traveled away from Ms. Taylor's doorway to the side of the building and fired 10 shots into Breonna Taylor's apartment through a bedroom window and a sliding glass door that were both covered with blinds and curtains. That was Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark. She's head of the Justice Department Civil Rights Division. We go now to Louisville, where we're joined by Sadiqa Reynolds, President and CEO of the Louisville Urban League. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Sadiqa, can you respond to these federal charges that were brought against these four officers? The two white officers who actually shot Breonna Taylor were not charged. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me again. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you know, we understand and we've always understood in Louisville that all of the officers might not be charged, but I have to tell you, this is a great step in the right direction. There really has been a sense of relief in Louisville among the family members, among protesters, among those of us who have really tried to encourage people to keep their hope, um, to, you know, really have some faith in our system. This, this, Certainly, this idea that any of these officers are charged with killing Breonna Taylor, it, it has really been a big deal and has been celebrated in Louisville. We know it's not over, um, but we are extremely thankful for the Department of Justice, I have to tell you that. I want to go to Breonna Taylor's mother, Tanika Palmer, who spoke at a news conference in Louisville yesterday. She criticized the Kentucky Attorney General, Daniel Cameron. You don't deserve to be where you are, and you need to go. And if we don't continue to eat him, one of y'all's on the menu next. He was dead wrong. It didn't start with him, but he had the first, he had the right to do the right thing, and he chose not to. So, Sadiqa Reynolds, let's talk about this. Federal civil rights charges have been brought against these four officers, um, but the state charges were never brought, except against Brett Hankison for wantonly shooting into the blind-covered windows, the bullets going into the next-door neighbors who were white. He was ultimately acquitted of that. Now he's been charged again. But what about um, Daniel Cameron, his significance? He's running uh, for governor next year. To be governor or even to run for governor, he clearly did a disservice. And what we want an investigation into is uh, what did Daniel Cameron know? Where did he get the information? What did he share with the uh, grand jury? How can it be that the federal government and state government are so far apart on this case? 
Uh, we are concerned that he is either incompetent or in collusion. We're not sure. Um, the people do deserve to understand because all of these people, all of these officers of the court are sworn to uphold and um, seek justice. And in this case in Kentucky, Everybody who had an opportunity to do the right thing, including our attorney general, failed. And we are, again, extremely thankful for the FBI keeping their eye on the ball in the Department of Justice. And I have to tell you, we have been talking a lot about this incestuous relationship between police and prosecutors across right. the country. You see the failure to prosecute police. You see the failure um, to hold them accountable. And so we haven't really seen the changes that we needed. Sure, we've all celebrated what happened with, you know, the George Floyd case, the Mart Arbery case, and now Breonna Taylor's case. But we have to look at those cases where there are no charges. There is a significant problem um, between our prosecutors and our police department. But very specifically, in Kentucky, we want an investigation into the office of the attorney general to understand what they knew, when they knew, and what was presented. It's especially important here because remember that in the grand jury case, you had grand jurors who came forward who said, this is not, we were not told certain things. We are, we, this is not what we wanted. And so we have to figure out and get to the bottom of what exactly happened in that matter. I think it's, I think it's very, very important. So, uh, you know, I wanted to go back to this issue of Cameron because uh, the 2020 news conference announcing the grand jury's findings, Cameron said jurors agreed homicide charges were not warranted against the officers because they were fired upon. I'm reading from AP right now. That prompted three of the jurors to come forward and dispute Cameron's account, arguing Cameron's staff limited their scope and did not give them an opportunity to consider homicide charges against the police in Breonna Taylor's death, Sadiqa Reynolds. That's, that's a, that, and that is the point. We need to understand what the scope of his investigation was, uh, what was presented to that grand jury, what did he know, and what did he allow the grand jury to know? Was there any look at all into the warrant? And if not, why? Because at the point that he convened the grand jury, this city protesters, um, every person, everybody in the city was saying there are problems with the warrant. There are problems with this case. We were identifying things. Some of these things were so blatant and obvious that laymen were identifying them. So we need to understand more about what our attorney general did or did not do, because it, it, it does feel like there may have been some predisposition as to what that case and how the case was going going to turn out. And I think it's important for those grand jurors to be heard. I mean, the jury system is an important system in this country. Um, it is something that we rely on for our democracy. So we ought to hear from our jurors when they object to the process that they have been included in. Sadiqa Reynolds, we want to thank you for being with us. And of course, we'll continue to follow this case. Sadiqa Reynolds is president and CEO of Louisville Urban League. Coming up, we remember the life and legacy of Albert Wood Fox, former Black Panther, who spent nearly 44 years in solitary confinement, longer than any prisoner in U.S. history. He died of COVID on Thursday. Stay oh. with us.
Young. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Albert Woodfox, who was held in solitary confinement longer than any prisoner in U.S. history, has died at the age of 75 due to complications of COVID-19. The former Black Panther and political prisoner won his freedom six years ago after surviving nearly 44 years in solitary confinement. He helped establish the first chapter of the Black Panther Party at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola to address horrific conditions at the former cotton plantation. In 1972, he and a fellow imprisoned Panther, Herman Wallace, were falsely accused of stabbing prison guard Brent Miller to death. Woodfox and Wallace always maintained their innocence and said they were targeted for their organizing with the Black Panthers. Miller's own widow would later urge the state of Louisiana to free Albert Woodfox after she became convinced he was innocent. Woodfox, Wallace, and a third Black Panther, Robert King, were collectively known as the Angola Three. For decades, Amnesty International and other groups campaigned for their release. Robert King was freed in 2001. Herman Wallace was freed in 2013, only after a federal judge threatened to jail the warden of Angola prison if he refused to release him that day. Herman Wallace died one day after his release of liver cancer. But the state of Louisiana continued to refuse to release Albert Woodfox. He was eventually freed on his 69th birthday, February 19th, 2016. Three days after his release, Democracy Now!'s Renee Feltz and I interviewed Albert Woodfox in his first live TV interview. Albert Woodfox, can you talk about your plans today? You've walked out of the prison. You haven't been free in 45 years what are you most struck by? Uh, what are your greatest challenges now or your moments of joy since Friday? Uh, for me, you know, as strange as it may sound, you know, when I was in, in, in prison, I had established who I was and ways to fight for what I believed in. Being released in society, I'm having to learn different techniques, you know, of how to, you know, I'm just trying to learn how to be free. I've been locked up so long and a prison within a prison. So for me, it's just about learning how to live as a free a person and uh, just take my time. Right now, the world is just speeding so fast for me and I have to find a way to just slow it down. And, uh, you know, just enjoy my family. That's been a great uh, uh, source of energy, uh, being able to sit down with King and laugh and and touch him. And he touched me and hug each other and stuff is, you know, grateful. Uh, he has been a man that ever since he walked out of prison, uh, he has spent the last 15 or more years of his life fighting for the get me and harm out. And, you know, there are very few human, be- human beings who have shown the character and the strength and the determination 
as my friend and comrade Robert King. You know, the Black Panther Party may not exist, but we still exist. Mm. And we continue to, uh, we will continue to struggle to free some of our comrades and, uh, and to, you know, stand, you know, uh, shoulder to shoulder and uh, uh, try to take on all of the injustice uh, that we can that goes on in uh, America every day. Albert, it's so great to have you join us. Can you explain the significance of going to visit your mother's grave site and why that was the first place that you wanted to go? Well, when my mom passed away, I had made a request to go to her funeral and say my final goodbye. Uh, Warden Burrow Kane uh, denied that request and the same thing happened with my sister when she passed away. Uh, my family and friends had made arrangements to uh, allow me to go and say goodbye. Again, Wardenboro can't deny that. So for some years now, there's always been this emptiness when it came, you know, to my mom and my sister because I never had a chance to say that final goodbye. And so that's why it was important that one of my first acts of being free was to relieve that burden off of my soul. That was Albert Woodfox speaking on Democracy Now! February 22nd, 2016, three days after his release, after over 40 years in solitary confinement. Following his release, Albert would go on to spend years speaking out against solitary confinement while campaigning for the release of other political prisoners. He also wrote a remarkable memoir with Leslie George titled Solitary, Unbroken by Four Decades in Solitary Confinement, My Story of Transformation and Hope. The memoir won an American Book Award and was a finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. In 2019, Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez and I interviewed Albert Woodfox in our New York studio after the publication of the book. And how do you feel today? How have you adjusted after 43 years in prison? Well, hopefully. You know, uh, one, you know, Robin and I still travel around across America and outside of America to talk about uh, solitary confinement, which uh, we believe is the most horrible and brutal non-physical attack upon a human being by another human being. Um, Throughout my four decades plus of solitary confinement, I've watched men go insane. I've watched men physically hurt themselves, uh, uh, you know, trying to deal with the uh, pressure of being confined to a nine by six cell, 23 hours out of every 24 hour period. And uh, being free now, I still suffer, you know, claustrophobic attacks. I'm, I'm able to address them better now because uh, my physical movement is beyond.
online feeding them. And so, you know, I can walk in my house. I can go in the backyard of my house. I can go on the sidewalk or the desert park, which I often uh, visit a block and a half away from my house. So the only remedy for me when I had claustrophobic excitement was uh, attached with the space, you know. So this, this has made it easier to deal with uh, this uh, And you write, gassing prisoners was the number one response by security to deal with any prisoner at Angola who demanded to be treated with dignity. In the 70s, we were gassed so often every prisoner in CCR almost became immune to the tears. You were being gassed in solitary confinement. Yeah, well, you know, the sergeants were provided with these little, it's like a little deodorant can, you know, and uh, if you would uh, try to get a certain, like a more toilet paper, or, or you complain about the toilet in your cell not working, uh, you know, and uh, if the officer didn't like the way you were talking, you know, or if you were trying to defend yourself for being handled a disrespectful man and stuff, you know, they would squirt the gas in your face, you know. And uh, usually uh, that would be followed by, they would come into your cell and beat you and handcuff you and bring it, put you what's called a dungeon, you know. In, in the book, you describe very graphically the situation at Angola when you first got there, before you were in solitary, and the rampant um, uh, rapes that were occurring in the prison. And once you became politically conscious uh, and you were returned there, you uh, you talk about you insisted that on your uh, in your section of, that there was going to be no more rapes. Uh, and talk about that and the impact that the, your political organizing had on the way you dealt with your fellow prisoners. Well, the incident that started the prison chapter of the party to the former anti-rape squad was, I was in my dormitory. I was hollering Hickory Ford at that time. And this young kid assigned a bed across for me. And the saddest thing I've ever witnessed in my life is to look at another human being and see that his spirit has been shattered. You know, and this kid, you know, he was just sitting there and I could see tears rolling out of his eyes, you know, and, and you know, I, I, I always have believed that in life, an individual incident raises your level of consciousness. And so once your level of consciousness is raised, you become aware of whatever conditions individuals and so how you respond to that you know it's pretty much determined on that level of conscious and I think at that moment that I said I, I can no longer accept this I can no longer tolerate this so the next day I had a talk with Harmony Wallace uh, and we had you know we used to go out on the football field that's how we used to have our meetings like we were practicing football, throwing the football around and having political discussion and stuff. And so we discussed with the other members about, you know, the rape uh, and slave uh, trade that was going on in Angola. And so we decided to start providing uh, protection for these kids coming in to let them know that they had other, other options other than being um, made victims. You know? How did you maintain your sanity 44 years in solitary confinement 
Well, I think the fact that, you know, I was a member of the Black Panther Party, I had a political conscience, I had uh, values and principles instilled by, you know, my mom that I grew, grew into, you know, I didn't realize uh, how much uh, my mom had, you know, built a self-foundation in me, in me, even though I was resisting it. And, you know, uh, over, over the decades, you know, well, you know, we had programs geared toward making the men better. We had schools, uh, we used to hold schools and political classes and, and, and you know, but, you know, as many battles as we won, as many men as we saved, uh, as many men as we helped to keep this sanity, we lost, you know, twice as many men, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, there were times when, you know, I had to fight really hard for my own sanity, you know, and I think the fact that what I was doing, you know, uh, throughout all this, I developed an unbelievable love for humanity and dedicated, you know, myself to doing whatever I could to better humanity. And so, I remember reading something from, uh, from Mr. Mandela, and he said, if no other causes, no one you can carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. And I thought what we were doing was a noble cause. So we were prepared, and so the beatings and the gassing and the decades of solitary confinement, you know, was really all the painful and difficult. It never got to the point where they were able to break us. It's amazing to me that rather than just leaving it all behind, I mean, you know, so it already consumes so many decades of your life. You are spending your life free talking about what's happening inside. I think to say the least, it's impossible for anyone who hasn't gone through this to understand what it means to live in a six by nine foot cell for more than four decades. How did you maintain your sanity? Describe for us, being in that cell, what it felt like. You know, well, actually, this, the measurements of the cell are six by nine, six feet wide, nine feet long. But there is actually less space available because you got two bunks attached to the wall. It takes up half of the cell, and you have a toilet bowls, face bowl combination on the back wall and you have a uh, iron uh, table with a bench on the thing. So you have a very narrow uh, pathway in which you can move back and forth in the cell. Um, you know, when you first put in solitary confinement, you know, you you you, uh, you go through this period where uh, you, you want to scream, you know, because, uh, you, you know, you, nothing you can do uh, to fight this. this, this I, well, you know, I, I, in hindsight, I would say it was probably the early stage of claustrophobic, you know, and, uh, you know, but uh, depending on the individual, as time goes on, you, you learn, you learn to, to control uh, your emotions, your, your, your feeling of being uh, smothered and being confined. Uh, uh, and so, you know, but then, you know, uh, you know, we first put this in solitary confinement. You could only have like 
two or three pound or wear the t-shirt and uh, you know you can have books or radios or I mean, those things, those things were gained later as a result of uh, our resistance and organizing and hunger strikes and, and, and stuff like that. We wanted the right to, you know, change. Albert, you wrote, my proudest achievement in all my years in solitary was teaching a man to read. Yes. How did you do that? And who was this man? Well, uh, his name is Charles, and we became good friends. And since, you know, my mom couldn't really write anything but her name, you know, there's certain things, people that can't really write, certain techniques they use and stuff. And so I picked this up on him. And, you know, uh, the CCR, the cell block, is 15 men to a cell. And the uniqueness about, I guess, uh, in, in, in Louisiana, the front of the ball, cell is made out of balls. It's not a completely concrete enclosed cell. So I used to ask him one day, I said, man, you know, don't get mad, but, you know, can you read it right, you know? And he said, you know, you know, I can't. And I just told him, I said, well, I can help you learn how to read and write, but you gotta really want it. You gotta want this better than anything. And so I use a dictionary, uh, starting off, you know, at the and dictionary at the bottom of each page. There's a sound key on how you pronounce words as to how they spell, you know. And I taught them about, uh, you know, vowels and and adjectives, and you know, just basically, you know, and showing, you know, learning, uh, teaching how to shape words, and and but and he really wanted it, you know, because I told him I said the law. You know, anytime, I don't care what night of day, you, you hit a, a wall, you call me. And he's called me two or three in the morning, you know. And uh, I can't pronounce this word. So I would ask him to spell it. And then I'd remind him of, you know, the, the voice key at the bottom of the page and how you pronounce, you know, alphabets as, a, you know, and, uh, and help him, you know. He was in solitary too. Yeah, he was about three or four cells down for me. How do you communicate? How did you communicate with other people in solitary? Well, you talk how up and down the tier, you know. This is one of the way I developed the habit of uh, waking up in the very early, uh, you know, a.m. because the tears stop showering. There's no noise, the doors are not open and closing. And, you know, so you are able to really concentrate on what you're doing. So even even now, you know, I wake up at 3, 3.30, you know, uh, in the morning, you know, and this is when I do most of my read. I still read, try to read at least two hours a day. So there's some things, uh, habits that I developed in prison I still try to hold on to. Your final thoughts as you go out into the world, as you travel the world, uh, taking advantage of every moment uh, in the free world. Well, you know, my, my, my hope has always been, you know, for better humanity. And to try to be a part of that, to try to say something or do something that will make, if there's no more than one human being, stop and think. And, you know, uh, start a dialogue that can lead into, that can uh, change into a movement. You know, I've always said that one individual can cause chaos, mass movements can cause change. So, you know, I still firmly believe in that. And so that's, 
you know, robbing and, uh, and harming. You know, when we were in prison, the one thing we always knew is, is that we didn't have a voice. And because of the men and women and children that were hid behind the walls of prison and in solitary, nobody knew what we looked like. So we had made a vow that we would be the voice of those men and women and children, and we would be the face. You know, I think what um, people in, um, in America and around the world have to realize, that prisoners don't come from another planet. They come from your family. They come from homes, and they might make mistakes. Usually, the economic uh, system brings depression. And, you know, I mean, I know that there's a very small percentage of human beings who do some horrible things, you know. But the overwhelming majority, you know, uh, you know, come with, you know, they come, you come from a family, you don't come from an alien planet. And they need to, they need to, you know, uh, remember that. And they need to love them and support them, you know, because prisons are all in state institutions. Uh, Without it, without oversight and without consequences, unchecked power corrupts, and that's situation you have in, in, in prisons in this country. Former Black Panther Albert Woodfox, speaking of Democracy Now! in 2019, shortly after the publication of his award-winning book, Solitary. Unbroken by four decades in solitary confinement, my story of transformation and hope. He died Thursday of COVID at the age of 75. We'll speak to his loved ones after break. Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report, and Amy Goodman, as we continue to remember the life and legacy of Albert Wood Fox, former Black Panther, who spent nearly 44 years in solitary confinement, longer than any prisoner in U.S. history. He died of COVID-19 at the age of 75 on Thursday, six years after he was freed from the Angola prison in Louisiana. We're joined now by three guests. Robert King was in prison with Albert Woodfox for decades in Angola. The two of them and the late Herman Wallace were known as the Angola Three. Kareem Williams is with us from Middlesex, New Jersey. She's one of Albert Woodfox's longtime attorneys. And in New Orleans, we're joined by Albert Woodfox's brother, Michael Mabel. Michael, let's begin with you. Um, 
deepest, deepest condolences. You were with your brother when he died yesterday um, in the hospital in New Orleans, and you're in the studio where, um, well, in the studio, we interviewed you in New Orleans a few days after Albert was released from prison in 2016. You were again at your brother's side as you were receiving him when he was freed. Can you share your thoughts about Albert, about his life and his legacy? Well, you know, his legacy was based upon, uh, you know, a change. And uh, no matter what uh, they needed to do and bring about change, you know, one of the things that we live for uh, as myself running, uh, visiting with him for 40 years, you know, he would teach me and I would let him know things that was going out. Uh, so, you know, I told him way back when I was a juvenile that at that point in time, when I was able to become a, a young man, that uh, I would visit with him and be with him uh, until, you know, to get to his part. And I made a, a solely vow, and I continue to honor that vow that his legacy go on. So, uh, you know, he, his body is gone, but I want his voice to be spoken to the world and continues. And, uh, He's speaking through me now to let, you know, let us know that uh, we, we can't stop. You know, there's a lot of change need to be done and, uh, you know, whatever we can do. And that's my plight is to, is to continue to do what he would want done. And I promise him in that. So, you know, it was kind of hard, you know, but it only strengthened me. And, uh, you know, I just want to keep his legacy going. Uh, you know, and I just want to, you know, like you said, like glad I said, change is going to come. And, uh, and anything I can do to honor that, to make that change, I want to be a part of it. I want to turn to a clip of you sitting next to Albert three days after his 69th birthday. Uh, that moment when you came on Democracy Now! and uh, he was free. This is what you said then. Only thing I felt and only thing I can answer is that I know he's a free man when I'm able to walk across the city up, up the door with him. <laughs> and that reality set in when we was able to do that. We're showing the picture of the two of you together, uh, Michael. What was it like when he came out of prison? You were there to greet him. Uh, when he came out of prison, uh, I, I noticed one of the things, you know, that... Uh, uh, he was free. He was free. And uh, one of the things that he done before he died, and we talked about this many years ago, that he wa he wanted his mind to be free. And, you know, that's one of the things he had in his book, you know, definitely stating, but, uh, you know, he was a free man and he's free now. And, you know, I speak, you know, for him and through myself to the world. I just want him to know that, uh, you know, that's one of the things we got, and that's one of the things we may vow to each other as brothers that, uh, you know, we would never uh, give up hope. And I think that may have helped him, and I'm glad as his brother played a big part of uh, allowing him to feel that that hope had came and that freedom was there. Yeah. You know? 
That day that we interviewed you and Albert, we also interviewed Robert King in that same studio, the three of you. Robert King, who when he got out of prison um, uh, about 15 years earlier, just traveled the country talking about who remained in prison. At the time, it was Herman Wallace and Albert Woodfox. Then Herman got out. Um, when a judge threatened the warden, if he didn't release him that day, he would imprison the warden. And uh, Herman got out only to die in the next days of liver cancer. Robert King, you never stopped. And this is what you said as you sat also next to Albert Woodfox when he was free. Oh, uh, when you hit bottom, there's no place but up to go. And Angola was the bottom. They even called it the bottom. And rightly so. And so we were trying to get out that bottom. And I know one way to get out the bottom is to try to come up and, and do some things to kind of offset the situation, that, uh, uh, you know, the, the sad situation that was going on in prison. But it, it was a comfort also to our, our own mind. I mean, we were politicized. We had... Uh, understood, you know, that we were, or why we were being uh, targeted and, 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 and punished. And this gave, this gave meaning to why we should struggle more so because, you know, it was an unjust reason um, and unjust position we were in and we had to struggle against this. So that's Robert King in 2016. Um, Robert, you're joining us on the phone. Our condolences, our deepest condolences to you as well. Joining us from not far from where Albert succumbed yesterday to COVID. Um, your thoughts? Hi, Amy. Um, you're finding me? Amy? Yes. Hi, Robert. If you can share your thoughts today on your on, on Albert Woodfox, his life and his death. Yeah. Can you hear me? We hear you perfectly. Yeah. Well, I was listening to it. I was, I was, I've been listening to the program since it started. Uh, wow. Kind of hard to, you know, to, to begin in my mind. It seemed as if Albert was in the room with me, but that was my sentiment. But look, Albert, so my sentiment now, you know, so Albert, he was my brother. He was my friend. Uh, I'm with him, you know, together. Uh, He traded back. Uh, uh, We saw some things that was amiss in prison and out of prison. Uh, we decided that we could add our little capital upon and so um, just in short, he decided to do just that, be true, the capital upon, knowing that they would create a ripple and knowing that they would eventually create a um, um, tsunami effect. And uh, he understood his, his reason for existing and he lived out there. Um kinda hard me to believe. No, but then again, you know, that was that he threw in the pond the camera the camera wave and uh, so this will carry him on into eternity and he won't be forgotten. Uh, 
You will certainly not be forgotten. Um, I wanted to go back to 1972 when Albert and fellow imprisoned Black Panther Herman Wallace were falsely accused of stabbing the prison guard Brent Miller to death. Woodfox and Wallace always maintained their innocence. They said they were targeted for being Black Panthers. In fact, Miller's own widow, Teeny Rogers, would later urge Louisiana to free Albert and Herman after she became convinced they were innocent. This is her in the 2010 documentary in the land of the free. I've been living this for 36 years. There's not a year that goes by that I don't have to relive this. It just keeps going and going. And these men, I mean, if they did not do this, and I believe that they didn't, they have been living a nightmare for 36 years. So that, that was Teeny Rogers. Um, Corrine Williams was one of Albert Fox's longtime attorneys, but that doesn't really describe her relationship, his beloved attorney, Corrine Williams. Corrine, can you talk about the significance of why he was held, like Herman Wallace uh, and like Robert King, for so many years, again, uh, to be this dubious distinction of the longest held prisoner in solitary confinement in this country for over 43 years. Yes, good morning, Amy. Um, and I, I can talk about that. Um, as you mentioned, he was convicted wrongfully in 1972, along with Herman Wallace for the murder of this corrections officer, Officer Miller. Um, and at the time, just by happenstance, the Supreme Court had declared the death penalty unconstitutional in America. And so, you know, our position had been, based on the evidence as we litigated the cases in Herman's case and, and Albert's case, that prison officials really um, put them in the cells and, you know, told them that they were going to throw away the key since they couldn't execute them. So it was intended to be a extra punitive um, sentence that was not, you know, given to them by a judge or through any lawful process, but by these prison officials at Angola Prison. Um, and for the next, you know, in Albert's case, 44 years, nearly 44 years, um, they were not only fighting to clear their name and overturn their convictions, but also fighting against these unconstitutional conditions that they were in of 23 hours a day in isolation um, for basically the duration of their life sentences is what uh, the prison officials at Angola prison were seeking. We only have 30 seconds, but if you can say how you finally got him out. Oh, well, it certainly wasn't me alone. There was a legion of uh, lawyers, paralegals, experts, and then people all across the world and um, in communities near and far uh, who supported these efforts of rolling boulders up mountains uh, to get Mr. Woodfox out in 2016. And, you know, since we were limited on time, I'll just say, Amy, I'm so glad that you played the clip of Albert talking about you know, if a cause is noble, a man can carry the weight of the world on his shoulders um, with his passing. We're going know, to have to leave it there, but I thank you so much, Green Williams and Michael Mabel and Robert King.
we will all remember Albert Whitfuck. I chose to become a frontline funder because I wanted to help BCTV deliver the information, education, and entertainment a thriving democracy required. I love free speech. McLean teaches here at Duke. She is the William Chef Professor of History and Public Policy. She also holds an appointment in the program of Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies. Uh, Nancy is the author of several award-winning books. Her most recent book, Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights, Still Plan for America, is a New York Times bestseller. Some of you may remember, people of a certain vintage, <laughs> the doomsday clock that was created by atomic scientists to gauge the imminence of uh, a, a nuclear confrontation. For those who don't remember the doomsday clock, the hands on this old analog clock would move toward midnight as danger mounted. If we had an equivalent democracy clock today, I would estimate that we are about three minutes to midnight, or to use military language, DEFCON 2. So it's vital to pre- This is Nancy McClain, as they announced, and this was done in 21, November of 21. Uh, yet I wanted to play this because she's so succinct and so clear in what she has to say. Professor of History and public, can you read that, Rama? Professor of History and Policy, loud and clear. At Duke University. Loud. Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University, author of Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights, Stealth Plan for America. Okay, so here we go. Appreciate what exactly we are up against and how it works. Today, Lisa and I will take on a piece of the overweening threat that we face, a piece that is lost in today's 24-7, shallow, horse race-style mainstream media. And that is this question of how and why some U.S. billionaires are funding anti-feminism, global homophobia, and other attacks on democracy. But I want to be very clear with you that this is only one facet of a unified, integrated threat that operates on many different fronts. And the scale and integration and sophistication of this kind of threat has actually, and I say this as a historian, never been seen before. When Anna asked me over the summer to present in this series, this topic came immediately to mind. Uh, and that's because it's been gnawing at me since I published Democracy in Chains. That book told the story of how the Koch network of organizations has weaponized a particular school of thought into a strategy to transform politics and governance without ever having to win over a majority to the kind of corporate libertarian ideology uh, from which all this comes. And the reason that is important, not having to win over a majority to these ideas, is that the architects of this effort know from repeated experience that would be impossible. So to put the key point in a nutshell, Charles Koch and his fellows learned from the Virginia School of Neoliberal Political Economy that they should concentrate instead 
on radical rules change at, at the state and national level, as well as in the courts and federal agencies, and ultimately lock in these changes with uh, amendments to the Constitution. They've used state laws uh, in particular and other tools to undermine collective power, particularly of labor unions, but also groups like Planned Parenthood. They have engaged in the uh, now 30 states that they control in the most radical and sophisticated redistricting efforts we've ever seen in our political history to overrepresent more conservative minorities and underrepresent uh, people of color and urban uh, and uh, liberal-leaning suburban communities. They have passed uh, voter suppression measures, the likes of which this country has not seen uh, since the disenfranchisement of African-American uh, voters at the turn of the century. Um, and they have undermined where they could independent state judiciaries, taking powers from Democratic governors, and so much more. And they have worked to capture our federal courts with stunning success in the case of the U.S. Supreme Court. They've been doing all of this in earnest for more than two decades now, with catastrophic results that seem to mount by the day, up to and including stopping action on the climate catastrophe, funding members of Congress complicit in the big lie and the failed coup on January 6th, and underwriting the organizations that are now driving the frenzy over teaching the truth about our history under the rubric of critical race theory, which in fact is not taught in K-12 schools as they purport. One key element in their strategy, though, has been alliances with the religious right that I only had uh, time to, to gesture to in the book. So I really want to thank Anna for inviting me to collect uh, some thoughts and findings on this critical, uh, critical topic, and also for being so excited at the prospect of including the amazing Lisa Graves, whose research has done so much to expose this menace and supply vital information to those in the trenches of trying to defend and renew democracy. So Lisa and I will be dividing up the presentation. Uh, first, I will uh, give you a sense of the reach and audacity of the billionaire efforts to weaponize homophobia uh, by profiling the transnational work of a group called the Alliance Defending Freedom. And then with that concrete example for you to think with, I will explain why pro-corporate and economic uh, liberty-minded billionaires like Charles Koch need the religious right. Then Lisa will turn yeah. to how they drive attacks on gender equity. And in the words of our mutual friend, Jasmine Banks of Uncoke My Campus, who I think is also on this call, uh, how they use, in this case, women as human shields for the billionaire's agenda. In that spirit, Lisa will share her organization's research on the also Orwellianly named Independent Women's Forum. The fig leaf of ideological consistency that enables the alliance of arch libertarians with would-be theocrats is a shared commitment to what they call li religious liberty, with the liberty to discriminate being the prime one pursued. So just as claiming a First Amendment freedom of speech right enabled unlimited corporate dark money in the Citizens United case and rulings against unions, including Janus, so religious liberty litigation opens up judicial space 
against anti-discrimination enforcement and for tax-funded, unregulated private religious schools. So that may sound abstract, so I want to turn to a case study of how this works globally. I can't actually see you. I was going to ask how many have ever heard of the Alliance Defending Freedom, um, uh, but my guess is perhaps not that many. Um, but the uh, And the Alliance Defending Freedom is not the only such organization, but it is the central organization in international faith-based outreach for this newly claimed religious liberty. It was founded in 1994 by Alan Sears, who may be familiar to some of you as the author of an incendiary tract titled The Homosexual Agenda, Exposing the Principal Threat to Religious Freedom Today. Catherine Stewart, a journalist who has tracked the group's history, says, and I quote, the ADF and its allies are as radical as they are rich. Few outside the ranks of evangelical activists and their funders are familiar with the ADF, but it enjoys backing from uh, two organizations, which have been called by journalists, the Koch Network ATMs, Donors Trust and the Donors Capital Fund, as well as the DeVos Foundation, which is the family foundation of Betsy DeVos and her deceased uh, husband and and, uh, some other donors. With an annual income of more than $50 million, the ADF has dozens of attorneys on staff and a network of over 3,000 cooperating attorneys. Thanks to them, the ADF has helped to drive almost every major legal case in the United States that has advocated uh, a religious freedom to discriminate, whether against female employees seeking contraceptive coverage in healthcare or against civil equal civil rights for LGBTQ citizens. It boasts of 53 victories in the U.S. Supreme Court, among them the landmark cases Florence versus Texas, Hobby Lobby, and Masterpiece Cake Shop. ADF legal advocacy, advocacy for Christian liberty is now truly global. Its attorneys have waged litigation in some 60 nations and hosted over 2,000 law students from 21 countries for ADF legal fellowship training programs in the U.S. The organization has offices in Brussels, London, Mexico City, and New Delhi, among other places, with the locations chosen to be close to power centers, such as the Organization of American States, the United Nations, and the European Union's High Commissioner for Human Rights. ADF attorneys argued to the latter, to the European Union's High Commissioner on Human Rights, and I quote, in favor of state-sanctioned sterilization for trans people, according to The Guardian. Their legal brief included this claim. Equal dignity does not mean that every sexual orientation warrants equal respect. Stewart reports that the Alliance Defending Freedom exports the revolution, that is, to supplant secular democracy with theologically informed religious liberty, I'm sorry, economic liberty for corporations. She notes that the ADF has demonstrated considerable skill in adapting to new cultural environments and political frameworks much as, one might add, the the multinational capitalists backing it must in order to succeed in their overseas profit-making enterprises. In the ADF's case, 
legal concepts that are developed in the United States are then spread through the world to make the case that the equitable treatment of LGBTQ citizens endangers religious freedom. There are now hundreds of organizations advancing this hard right program in the courts and um, uh, in courts and and, uh, and and legislatures across the European continent and beyond. In Belize, the ADF worked with another group to criminalize gay sex. Together, they create the appearance of homegrown uprisings against what they call the gay agenda. Yet, notes Elena Zakarenko, a Brussels-based policy consultant, quote, it is the same individuals involved in uh, many of the seemingly different organizations, which creates an impression of many different movements of masses of agitated citizens seeking these policy changes against the gays, even where there are no such local movements. In fact, the opposite is often true. Well-funded organizations in the United States throw up distractions to hide their dominance in these efforts. In fact, picture this, because this is how they work. At the hub of all of this are ADF staff members housed in the group's Scottsdale, Arizona headquarters who are paid who are paid to spend their days hunting the internet for potential overseas partners. In effect, what they do is look for embers in other countries on which they can pour gasoline. The organization also maintains foreign scouts, as they call them, to alert it to obscure cases that its legal team can assist. All of this, notes one scholar of the global right, quoting from the organization's own webpage, allows the ADF to be involved without appearing to be interlopers from America. Both Romania and Sweden have been sites of such ADF tactical guidance in the passage of hate speech protecting and discrimination enabling laws involving LGBTQ citizens in partnership with local anti-gay organizations. The local groups represent only a tiny minority of public opinion, but with this powerful U.S. backing, they have been able to amplify their work and achieve so-called free speech and religious liberty protections. So what we're seeing in the case of the ADF, to be clear, is a U.S.-based effort on the part of would-be theocrats to both incite and leverage homophobia around the world to expand their cause. And that effort is underwritten by some of the richest men in the world, including some who never showed any religious commitment themselves, like Charles Koch. For his part, in fact, Charles Koch is abetting a right-wing Catholic campaign against Pope Francis, according to the Catholic Reporter, including funding centers at more than two dozen U.S. Catholic universities that actually teach against Catholic social justice doctrine. But the ADF is just one of many organizations that exploit and inflame fear of women's power and of queer freedom to advance the overall agenda of the donors. So now, let me pull back the lens to explain why those who are not themselves religious are backing these efforts. So, why do arch-right billionaires like Charles Koch who want to just transform global governance to their liking, need the religious right. 
The answer is not obvious. After all, there was a time when Koch's Cato Institute stood up for abortion rights and called for ending penalties for sex between consenting individuals. But as the writer Lynn Perrin Paramore recently pointed out, the libertarian grantees have gone very quiet about their previous commitments. In September of this year, she asked in an article with this title, why aren't libertarians protesting the freedom-busting Texas abortion law? Paramore pointed to Ayn Rand, who did more than anyone else to popularize libertarianism. Rand said uh, when abortion was still a crime, and I quote, Abortion is a moral right, which should be left to the sole discretion of the woman involved. Morally, nothing other than her wish in the matter is to be considered. Who can conceivably have the right to dictate to her what disposition she is to make of the functions of her own body? End quote. Yet Paramore searched and found that not a single libertarian bigwig spoke out against this year's Texas anti-abortion law, which relies on vigilante bounty hunters to deny women this elementary moral right and freedom. There are reasons for that stunning silence from the self-styled liberty cause, however, reasons philosophical, practical, and electoral. As feminist scholars have argued, Neoliberalism as a governing regime depends on social conservatism. And it has since F.A. Hayek convened the Mont Pelerin Society in 1947. They met, as Bethany Morton has pointed out, during Holy Week. And Hayek included the teaching of history and the relationship between liberalism and Christianity among the three critical topics for the meeting. He believed that reentrenching a 19th-century-style market economy and society would also require reinstilling religion. As Morton has shown, Hayek and many of his co-thinkers felt a need for religious faith to provide what she calls a soul to their defense of corporate freedom, a cause that otherwise would not seem especially transcendent or worthy of commitment. Morton demonstrates in her work how, and I quote, religious doctrine and devotion have been among the principal conduits for neoliberal ideas, policies, and practices, and how the market freedom of this cause has led to the entrenchment of what she rightly calls intimate forms of unfreedom. As scholars, including Linda Kintz and Kevin Cruz, have alerted us, corporate donors see the value of particular variants of religion to their cause. That is why they've invested vast sums in individuals who produce a theology to abet their market fundamentalist project and in organizations that disseminate uh, to entrepreneurial clergy and voters that theology. Okay, so that's the philosophical reason in brief. Practically, those who seek to privatize public goods and services like education, healthcare, and so forth, need some other entity besides government to take up the slack. Throughout the neoliberal causes history, they have assumed that families would make their arch version of personal liberty possible. Again and again, in the literature of neoliberalism, theorists talk about the individual, yet smuggle in the family. Melinda Cooper quotes Milton Friedman lecturing on this point. He said, this is really a family society, not an individual society. 
Why does that matter? Because, Cooper explains, they want to return us to the older four-law tradition of private family provision. They rely on families and implicitly on the women in them to take up as unpaid care work what the government ceases to provide. Studies by feminist scholars have documented that that is precisely what's happened. That's part of why we face such a deep and urgent care crisis in America. Finally, electorally, only the very tiny sliver of the electorate believes in the kind of extreme economic liberty that these corporate donors seek. So that is why the Coke Donor Network in particular has cast its lot with the religious right along with the gun enthusiasts of the NRA. In contrast to their open radicalism in the 1970s, Coke operations now fly under the false flag of conservatism. They take pains to find common ground with the most arch of religious conservatives, who also happen to be an ideal target audience because creationists' long denial of the science of evolution prepared them well to accept Coke-led climate science denial, to say nothing of the big lies of voter fraud and Trump victory. This strategy, this alliance strategy, has brought them the most unquestioningly loyal base of GOP voters. So having given you the global example of the ADF, and I hope a sense of why these alliances matter and serve both parties to them at the rest of our expense, let me hand things over to Lisa Graves to report on the U.S. operations of some of these groups. And let me say, uh, for those who don't know Lisa, that she is simply the best researcher we have on the corporate bad actor beat, and she is a democracy warrior extraordinaire. Her heroic and generous work brings to mind, for me, the story of the proverbial little Dutch boy who plugged his finger in the dike to hold back a flood. She does that every day, every week, every month, year after year. So I am so honored to welcome her to Duke. Lisa. Oh my goodness. Nancy, it's uh, such an honor to follow you and to be on this panel. And that, that was such a kind and generous introduction. I really, really appreciate it. Let me just begin uh, by saying when I when I uh, spoke with Nancy um, and she told me about uh, the research that she'd been doing about alliance defending freedom, uh, one of the things that struck me was that um, Amy Coney Barrett, before she became a Supreme Court justice just last year, uh, she was um, someone who was actually a paid speaker at uh, Alliance Defending Freedom's training grounds for lawyers. And I just want to um, share a bit about that for a moment because it's not, it's not it, I think it exemplifies how this group is so influential. Um, she was a paid speaker um, at least five times starting in 2011 with Alliance Defending, Defending Freedom's program called the Blackstone, Leader, Blackstone Legal Fellowship. Uh, and it was established to inspire quote, uh, a distinctly Christian worldview in every area of the law. That's according to their tax filings. It was founded uh, to show uh, people who were lawyers, um, uh, quote, how God can use them as judges, law professors, and practicing attorneys to help keep the door open for the spread of gospel in America. So in essence, to use their jobs to advance their religious beliefs. Now, um, Amy Coney Barrett has attested 
that she would never do such a thing, that she has no view, um, uh, that she would impose her personal views on the law. We've heard that those lines before from Brett Kavanaugh when he was nominated, uh, claimed he had no views that he would impose about Roe, and then immediately, uh, uh, once he was confirmed, uh, took steps to help uh, begin the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Um, but it's also the case that uh, it's not just uh, that group. It certainly is that group that's playing significant role. Um, but there was a tremendous book that was released just a couple of years ago by Elise Hogue and Ellie Langford from Mayrell. It's called The Lie That Binds. And it really detailed uh, some of these uh, connections um, and how, as Nancy said, uh, the right wing um, and the libertarian right have, have joined forces. And I would be remiss if I didn't say to you that uh, one of the most salient reports I've ever seen about this was just published by the Washington Post mm -hmm. uh, just this past weekend in the Washington Post magazine. It's a piece uh, written by Robert O'Hara, a, a great and longtime investigative journalist for the Post. Um, it's called uh, God, Trump, uh, and, and uh, the, secret, um, the Secret Workings of the Council on National Policy. I think it has a slightly different title online now, but it's about the Council on National Policy, and that's story that he wrote uh, really tells the story of this uh, this effort that began with Paul Weirich, Nancy mentioned, uh, and others who decided that Ronald Reagan wasn't going to be far enough to the right for them, and they needed to deploy um, the evangelical Christians in the country to really dominate government policy. Um, at one point, um, early in the Reagan administration, by the way, as, as Robert O'Hara points out, uh, David Stockman, who was, I think, then like 35 years old and was the budget director, the notorious budget director for the Reagan administration, came to a Council of National Policy meeting to talk about how Reagan wasn't putting enough, in essence, they weren't putting enough um, right-wing Christians into, into positions of power. And um, at that point, uh, uh, in essence, uh, uh, what was not said was that David Stockman was also a divinity student. So he was one of those appointees. That was, that was basically there because of, uh, in essence, a religious uh, test for office. Um, and one of the goals was to try to get uh, more people like him into key positions of power. And to fast forward to the present, as, as uh, Robert O'Hara reported uh, in the Post this weekend, uh, and has been reported by documented uh, investigations, document.net, which I co-founded, but which I did not report on I, uh, recently, uh, documented um, has noted, and, and Robert Harris noted that um, one of the things that happened in the Trump administration was that Council of National Policy groups were working to basically help determine who was getting appointments in the Trump administration. And the, the story that Robert O'Hara tells is really about how um, there was this skepticism of Trump in 2016 by some people who um, uh, had said that they were against uh, someone of Trump's uh, morality, uh, in essence, or his track with his track record, but how they were convinced that he was the man who would deliver them the agenda they wanted, particularly impacting the U.S. Supreme Court. So, um, as Nancy said, you know, Charles Koch uh, and some of the Koch libertarians have talked about how their pro-choice, and in fact, the Libertarian Party was founded in 1971 um, with a stated uh, object objective of supporting uh, women's reproductive rights. But the reality is, is that uh, almost every political um, elected official that Charles Koch has backed, that his groups, Americans for Prosperity, have aided, that his other dark money operations have pushed, have been 
you know, deeply anti-choice, um, deeply desirous of overturning Roe. Um, and so you can have, a, you can have a, some PR about how you have a position of being pro-choice, but the reality is, is that almost every, every candidate they back is anti-choice, and so it really means nothing. Uh, I believe that the words are um, cheap and the action is much more demonstrative. Um, <clears throat> Charles Koch is in his 80s now, but he's been at this since the 1960s. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that I've helped uh, uncover is how long Charles Koch has been attempting to re-engineer America, uh, re-engineer the United States to shape his worldview. And that includes very early, uh, early funding of what was called at the time anarcho-capitalist theories. Almost 60 years ago, Charles Koch attended the Freedom School, which taught the anarcho-capitalist theories of Robert Lefebvre, and he became a funder of that school. So Charles Koch was part of that, too. As well as part of funding for the John Birch Society, it wasn't just his father, who was a, a initial leader, co-leader of the, of the John Birch Society, but Charles Koch himself was a funder of the John Birch Society. And, you know, at that time, the ability to the United Nations, it's attacks on uh, John, President John Kennedy. But what, it, what the bulk of its materials were focused on was attacking the civil rights movement in the United States. And so as Charles Koch was funding the John Birch Society, it was actively attacking uh, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. It was actively attacking uh, the civil rights movement and equality, uh, efforts to gain equality. That was its core focus. He ultimately left the John Birch Society, um, over Vietnam, not over its attacks on Reverend, Reverend Martin Luther King. Um, and this is one of the things he was quoted on early on in his career, where he was uh, uh, speaking to his group, the uh, IHS, the so-called Institute for Humane Studies, which was an, is another institute, uh, libertarian institution that's now housed at George Mason, and I think it's important to note that this, this is a broad attack, an attack on taxation. They think he, he, his position was that tax was theft, wage and price controls, you know, minimum wage, um, including their so-called equal opportunity requirements. Those are his words, right? Those aren't my words. This is Charles Koch in 1974 attacking equal opportunity requirements and so much more, <clears throat> including licensing laws. You're probably hearing a lot about attacks on licensing laws. Uh, that's a, an ongoing part of that Koch agenda. But um, this was 1974, and really nothing much has changed uh, since then. Um, what has changed, um, and, and Uncoke My Campus has been instrumental in uncloaking this, is how Uncoke um, has been so effective at pushing his agenda through universities uh, and basically buying uh, control, buying access, buying control, buying influence through universities, in addition to um, his uh, tremendous efforts to uh, really distort our elections uh, on overdrive for the past um, 11 years, but really uh, dating back to his uh, efforts to fund the Libertarian Party in the 70s and his uh, dark money trial balloon back in the 1990s that was called the Triad Operation. It's definitely, definitely worth looking up. I'm not going to read this slide uh, to folks here, but suffice it to say that um, if you want to know more about how um, Pope has been operating on campus, uh, you should definitely look up Uncoke My Campus. Um, I want to pause before moving forward just to talk a bit about this, this gap between the, the stated uh, philosophical purity uh, or claims by Cook's PR machine and the reality. So um, this chart is derived from, uh, from a report by the Western Post that came out after the 2012 election. That election, there was an operation that Cook 
uh, helped uh, spearhead, uh, that he led the advance after the Citizens United decision in the Supreme Court, and that group, uh, a group was very active in the 20 election, and no one besides the co-operation and co-operatives knew what it was, knew that it even existed. It was called Freedom Partners. Um, it's, it then became Seminar Network. Now it's called Stand Together, some version of Stand Together, Chamber of Commerce. But at the time, it was this sort of disposable group that uh, that's name was Freedom Partners. And if you look at that um, that green line, but you can see a thing called um, Aura LLC, uh, five million dollars went to Aura LLC. So they they were using these sort of um, LLCs to mask uh, some of their operations. And and in, on this point, you can see direct funding uh, by Charles Koch's um, uh, political operation, which is Freedom Partners, to this um, to this entity called Aura, which was which was closely tied to another obscure entity. I'm going to pardon me for the um, acronyms here. It was called Evange. Our for sites, E V A N G C H R four. You know, I think it's pretty clear it stands for Evangelical Christians for something trust. In a one year period, that was five million dollars that went to Aura, and a substantial amount of money went into this particular trust. What did that trust fund? It funded the Family Research Council action, which is part of the Family Research Council. And what did Family Research Council action do? It hired Josh Duggar. Uh, Josh Duggar, who is from the Duggar family fame and has infamy for his own uh, uh, criminal activity. Um, That's what happened. Uh, That money went into funding FRC's political arm to try to help get Republicans elected to office. Uh, It was uh, it was described as general support. But the reality is, is that it was instrumentally involved in their efforts to deploy evangelical Christians to advance the GOP agenda. So one of the, we know for sure that uh, they received, you know, a six-figure sum. Um, but beyond that, that's not all. They were also funding um, other uh, other groups, uh, including the um, <clears throat> including Focus on the Family um, and other uh, right-wing Christian organizations. Um, and you know, part of that, as Nancy said, um, is about this notion of restoring the family to its original purpose. Um, in fact. That's um, that's one of the uh, things that uh, another group um, another group that uh, has been funded by Freedom Partners, but Freedom Partners Concerned Women for America, has described as its primary objective. And it's also notable, and I'll end on this point in terms of the Coke agenda, that that money included 1.3 million dollars to a, a thing called Citizen Link, which aided focus on the family in voter mobilization and candidate training in its strident opposition to gay marriage and to legal abortion. So, you know, there's a myth about this libertarian uh, uh, support for women's equality or women's autonomy, and it's just not real when it comes to actual dollars. Part of this money, and I'm going to just make this as a very brief point, supporting um, Leonard Leo and uh, Leonard Leo's, um, what Charles Koch's books called the under the dome strategy, basically to uh, try to capture the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, he describes that as restoring the, quote, rule of law. This is These are all terms that mean nothing that an ordinary person would think they mean. They actually mean reversing um, a decade of precedent, decades, decades of precedent, I should say. And in fact, um, Robert O'Hara wrote a piece a couple of years ago in May of 2018 where he um, uh, revealed 
that Leonard Leo had spoken to Council on National Policy, that group I mentioned, that is the subject of this most recent article by Robert O'Hara, that that group um, had had uh, received Leonard Leo shortly after the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. And um, at that meeting, Brett, at that meeting, Leonard Leo told the funders, the right-wing funders assembled there, which did not include Coke, uh, but which included many others, that because of these appointments by Donald Trump, this was before Amy Coney Barrett, um, the U.S. Supreme Court was on the precipice of what he called a revival of what he dubbed the structural constitution that would result in uh, reversals of precedent, changes in law unseen for nearly 100 years, basically going back to the Robert Barron era uh, before the New Deal. That's, you know, uh, basically um, mapping out an assault on the, the modern precedents that have actually breathed life into the terms of our constitution that prior courts had disregarded, like equal protection of the law in the 14th Amendment. Um, so there's definitely more to the story about Leonard Leo, his uh, working with um, these dark money groups, uh, some of which are include the Infant Women's Voice, uh, who I'm going to talk about in a, in a moment here and focus on, um, but also um, other parts of this operation have now been rebranded, redubbed, different names. But if you go to our website, through our research, you can see our report on the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. You can see more about the groups that were um, uh, deployed to back these nominees and, and uh, to back uh, the packing of the court by Donald Trump. Um, and uh, there are important details there. Um, I'm going to use that as a bridge to talking about the fact that one of the things we uncovered last year was that the leader of the Independent Women's Voice and Independent Women's Forum um, was uh, is a woman named Heather Higgins. The Independent Women's Forum, um, Independent Women's Voice, is a group uh, that is very active in U.S. politics, um, very active in advancing an anti-feminist agenda, and um, although it describes itself as a group that's concerned about all women's issues, that all women's issues, all issues are women's issues. Um, the fact is, is that this organization um, has has long received Coke funding. It actually was um, co-located for a period uh, with uh, Americans for Prosperity, Coke's uh, 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 signature political operation that was both what's called Americans for Prosperity and its predecessor name, which was Citizens for a Sound Economy. So at that time, this was uh, in the early 2000s, IWF was actually co-led by the former leader of Coke's um, lobbying team uh, of Coke Public Sector for Coke Industries, which is one of the which is one of the largest public, privately held corporations in the world, and which is the company that has made um, Charles Coke one of the richest men in the world. And so here you have a, a right-wing women's group that was funded, fueled, directed by one of the people who was one of the right-hand lobbyist for um, Charles Koch and his agenda in Washington. Um, but that's not all. There's been recent funding uh, by Charles Koch's operations of IWF and IWV. And they are groups that have uh, have taken very extreme positions. Um, as Nancy said in, in describing the name as, Or as Orwellian, I, I, uh, I agree with that wholeheartedly because um, one of the things that Heather Higgins has told donors uh, in a video that I, I found um, about her speaking to the David Horowitz uh, group was that um, one of their, I'm going to paraphrase here, but one of their um, um, uh, pluses, one of their advantages is because of their branding, meaning the word independent, 
people don't know that they're really right-wing, that they're really so-called conservatives. Um, but the people who, who do need to know, meaning the funders, know that they are. So they're able to traffic with this brand of independence. And one of the things that IWF has done, IWF and IWV has done, is to claim that they don't have any position on choice. Uh, meanwhile, um, after, uh, after some of these um, Senate candidates have made really outlandish statements against women's reproductive choice, um, they have been, um, they, they have played the central role in helping them, um, in helping them to get uh, elected. So for example, um, back in 20, I think it was 2012, um, U.S. Senate candidate Todd Aiken claimed that rape victims couldn't get pregnant because if it was legitimate rape, the female body has ways to shut, to try to shut that whole thing down. I'm sure you remember that statement. He made that statement in August of that election year. Um, IWV afterwards spent thousands of dollars on robocalls to try to help Aiken win. Um, similarly, that year, uh, during the year of the War on Women uh, candidates, uh, uh, U.S. Senate candidate Richard Murdoch um, said that when a woman became pregnant through rape, she was carrying a gift from God and that the pregnancy was something God intended to happen. Two weeks later, the Independent Women's Voice spent $176,000 plus dollars on ads supporting Murdoch. Um, it's also supported Donald Trump, despite numerous misogynistic statements he's made, including about boasting about inspecting beauty contest dressing in rooms and the sexual assault allegations against him. Um, in 2016, IWF and IWB specifically targeted women in Wisconsin in the two weeks before the 2016 election, and then took credit for Trump's win. And they claim that but for their efforts, Trump would have received an estimated 215,840 fewer votes in Wisconsin. That was, those are the words of Heather Higgins. Um, and as I said, they've also actively supported Brett Kavanaugh and other, um, other Trump members of the court. Um, they even attacked Christine Blasey Ford, uh, calling her accusations of publicity stunt um, and attacking her credibility uh, personally. Um, this is really no surprise to me because the roots of IWF um, are in defending Clarence Thomas in the face of Anita Hill's testimony that he made sexually explicit and repulsive overtures toward her when he was her boss and mentor. So um, what is IWF doing now? What are they up to lately? Uh, well, they were very active in the Virginia election uh, this past, these past few weeks. Uh, creating a site called about you know so-called toxic schools, attacking McAuliffe, trying to fuel the um, uh, division and false claims, in my view, about uh, critical race theory being taught uh, in public schools, which is not the case. Um, as one of my as one of my friends said, if your if your child is being taught critical race theory, congratulations, they're in law school already, um, and that's not even what's taught in all law schools. It's an elective class in some law schools, and so. Um, they've been fueling that disinformation campaign as well as uh, attacks on masks for kids. Um, they uh, played a lot of, uh, pushed a lot of uh, PR this past year in attacking uh, public health protections in response to the pandemic. Um, and they really are um, a pay to play organization that brings together um, both this right wing uh, sort of social agenda with this. Uh, corporate agenda of Coke and the Coke world, which is, you know, attacking uh, government regulations, attacking efforts to mitigate climate change, attacking 
efforts to regulate um, uh, Juul and vaping, uh, Juul funds them, uh, attacking efforts to regulate fracking, on and on and on. Um, but that's not all, and I think I'll, I'll end on this note in terms of IWF. Um, one of the things that, um, and this is very important to me, and so I, it's, it's not a conclusion uh, at, at the at, put at the end because it's not important. It's actually one of the most important things, which is that IWF and IUB have you know, strongly opposed women's economic equality policies, including paid leave and attacking the Build Back Better plan, but you know, long before that, attacking uh, paid sick leave for women and families. Uh, they've attacked uh, equal pay. Uh, they routinely uh, write an write a, uh, op-ed opposing the Equal Pay Act, attacking the idea that there's any pay gap. Um, they've attacked Title IX, which has been transformational for women's equality in the United States. First, years back, taking the sides of men's hockey teams in college against women's athletics, and most recently attacking the U.S. women's soccer team and its efforts to secure equal pay. And it also has um, actively opposed the adoption of the Equal Rights Amendment and hailed Phyllis Shapley when she was alive and posthumously for her leadership on that issue. This is an issue where... Just so you know, only 5% of the American population opposes the adoption of the ERA. But where is the so-called Independent Women's Forum and Independent Women's Voice staunchly opposing the adoption of the ERA? And in fact, just this past week in Congress, they testified against the adoption of the ERA. And so you have a right-wing women's group that's very tied to the Coke fortune, a very tied to right-wing dark money operations, very tied to helping to pack the Supreme Court, that is again and again and again taking positions that fundamentally harm the interests of women while posing as an independent group that really represents women's opportunity. I wholeheartedly disagree, um, but I'm glad to have had the chance to share with you this concrete example, as Nancy said, of the way one of these operations works in the United States to um, oppose women's economic opportunity and women's uh, political equality um, and women's Genuine equality. Uh, what you have in the in the roots of Koch's agenda has been an effort to basically um, uh, limit the ability of people in a democracy to pass laws that constrain corporations, that would limit the power of corporations, that would tax corporations, that would impose environmental protections or equal opportunity laws or what have you. And and then you have this uh, effort by uh, groups tied to Koch, people tied to Koch, some of them, not all of them to dramatically uh, change U.S. election law. Uh, Charles Koch helped underwrite uh, the litigation that resulted in the Buckley versus Vallejo decision back in 1976. Oh that my began God. the notion that money is speech and should not be, cannot be limited under our Constitution, that culminated in the Citizen United decision, which then unleashed this massive, you know, uh, well over a billion dollars of spending by the Koch network to try to capture elections, and now you have many of the politicians that Koch has backed, um, uh, that Koch's operation, MRX Authority, has helped. They're at the center of um, efforts to make it harder for Americans to vote. And then finally, um, and not only finally, but finally for my purposes in this part, you have America, the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, which is a major Koch-funded operation who has been helping to spread uh, this big lie, or what I call the big lucrative lie, about the election to try to change um, to try to change the way our elections are run to try to change what was what was demonstrably the most secure election uh, most monitored election in U.S. history in 2020 with huge turnout in a, in a pandemic 
over enormous obstacles thrown up by Koch operatives um, in legislatures. Um, and, uh, and yet you have this wave this year of efforts to make it hard to vote. So what can you do? What can we do? Uh, well, the first part is knowledge, uh, learning about knowing what's happening. And the second part is um, personally, speaking personally, we are going to have to ensure that everyone who has a right to vote can vote, does vote, and make sure those votes are actually counted and not set aside by extreme partisans who are backed by uh, some of these Koch operations. Nancy? And I think Lisa captured it. You know, I think the exposure is crucial because they want to be able to operate in the dark, right? And to not have people know that they use disinformation as a strategy and that they're rigging the rules. So I think the more that we can expose that, and you know, and that includes things like calling up your your radio or TV station, you know, if they're missing the point on something they're reporting on, letters to the editor, informing your organizations, all of those things are, are crucial and also uh, supporting the democracy reform legislation like the Freedom to Vote Act, that, that is absolutely critical. Uh, have any of you done a comparable analysis to measure the capacity of the Democrats' political and funding network to resist the Koch network? Uh, I can say, yeah, that there are uh, Democratic um, uh, efforts, fundraising efforts to try to counter this. Um, there are national efforts. There's also state-based efforts. Um, they're wonderful, you know, and they're developing and growing, but they are, uh, first of all, nowhere near as well-funded as those on the right, nor are they as strategic as those on the right. So I think one of our challenges on the progressive side is that we continue to operate in different issue silos, right? You know, people who are working on the environment or civil rights or union rights or, you know, um, queer policy or, you know, all these different things without kind of cross-pollinating to say, hey, you know what? We all depend on a functioning, transparent democracy answerable to the people to achieve the things that we need to. And so I think that that has begun to change in recent years. Ironically, I think Trump's election really woke people up, you know, and, and generated all the indivisible groups and others that are so, you know, heavily um, driven by women who are alarmed at all of this. Uh, but but it's really important to have those uh, organizations kind of um, break down the barriers among them, support one another's efforts, and all, for all of us to think more strategically. You know, so sometimes there might be a particular thing that seems like absolutely the right thing we must fight on this, but we also need to be thinking the other side is very strategic in how they do what they do. Um, so, so it's important for us to do this. And I, I'll say too, because I saw there was also a question about race, which we might take up separately, but um, DEMO the think tank Demos has done some pretty pretty powerful, uh, important work on what they call the race class narrative. And you can actually look that up and see it. But what they found in messaging is that if you just push, say, a kind of class-based issues narrative that doesn't address um, the, the, the weaponizing of race by the right, or if you just address the racial justice issue, you actually lose not only with white voters, but with also with African-American and Latinx voters. Um, but if you put together 
um, the, the economic justice and the racial justice vision in what they call race class fusion to say, hey, look, you know, um, you know, whatever our backgrounds, we all need, you know, whatever it is, healthcare, this, that, and the other. But we have very wealthy people who are trying to pit us against one another, you know, as with these ridiculous critical race theory attacks that are clearly going to be the 2022 Republican election strategy. You know, we have people who are trying to divide us. Um, and that language, you know, they pulled tested it and done it at the doors. That language really works. So I would refer people to that, too, because it's absolutely clear that this kind of um, uh, race baiting, uh, um, uh, racializing of elections is going to be the strategy in, in 2022 and 2024. For uh, and, and also, I think we have to say here, which I, I'm realizing neither one of us really did, but I'm sure you've kind of figured this out, many of you on your own. But this donor money um, and the way it's been used to inflame the Republican base has created a pincers action that has made the Republican Party a delivery vehicle for all that we're talking about, right? So there really is no more independence. And that's why, you know, to so many people shocked, there was so little condemnation of the big lie or of January 6th, the, you know, the failed coup attempt, because the Republican elected officials are so afraid of the donors and of that inflamed base who work together to keep them alive. I would just add one thing to what Nancy said and defer to her on uh, on her analysis of that, which is, yeah, I think that there are um, you know tremendous some tremendous leaders in Congress who are trying to move forward reforms. Both the, uh, as Nancy said, the um, the, the, the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act and the um, and the S one you know uh, effort to, to be basically uncloak this dark money and certainly Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is one of those leaders just tremendous doing tremendous work to try to help expose what's happening and help reform it but he's not alone there are many people in in both houses of Congress that see uh, this crisis unfolding it as Nancy said at DEFCON is that right? <laughs> Deaf country um, that uh, um, that are that are trying to fix it, and obviously there are some challenges in that because you have a united Republican Party opposing uh, reform. In reality, whatever they may say about you know, for a reporter, as a matter of votes, they are not allowing these things to move forward. And you have um, a couple of members of the Democratic Party, like Joe Manchin, who's an Alec alum, uh, who are are thwarting these reforms that are vital to save our democracy from the dustbin of history. Thank you. So I want to ask another question. It's uh, how many uh, kind of companies and operations Hulk actually owns and funds, and how he's creating an alternative universe, an alternative audience, an alternative kind of alternative language. Actually, it's a very important one. Can you, can you talk about that? So, so I'll just say on that question of um, Coke um, Industries, there's a very good book about Coke Industries and how secretive it is, how long it's funded uh, uh, climate demand. It's actually back in my bookshelf right there, Coke Land. But what's interesting is the author of that doesn't even touch the, the international operations of the Coke Network. So it's in at least 60 countries with over 60,000 employees, You know, many of them uh, fossil fuel states. So, so it really could use more uh, research as could all of these things. Lisa, what would you say in response to that question? Also, this um, question that Anna posed about, you know, even when we use the same words, <laughs> these folks are repurposing the words to mean something very different. Well, let me, let me take that, uh, that, that last part first. It's definitely the case, for example, that, that the right wing uses the word freedom to mean a lot of things that aren't really freedom. 
um, and uh, and to basically abnegate responsibility, uh, mutuality, our shared interest in a functioning society. Um, in terms of the 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 you know scope of Coke's with Coke's control, I mean certainly Coke Industries is a massive company that Chris Leonard details. Um, its reach and also notes that you know a, a much much of its new wealth is coming from Wall Street, not necessarily uh, from uh, the core pipeline operations and and uh, Georgia Pacific and the sort of brick and mortar stuff. But um, there's that in terms of the the other organizations that he has funded, um, they're manifold. Um, and as Nancy said, they're both uh, abroad through the Atlas Network and other operations in numerous countries. And they're all over the United States, um, in every state, almost, if not all of them. Um, and a lot of these big national groups have major Coke funding and have had, have had major Coke funding for years. And then there's this political operation, um, which is led by Americans for Prosperity and then has a couple other brands under Concerned Veterans for America, Libre, to focus, Latino, focus on Latino voters, um, his alliance with the United Negro, Negro College Fund, for scholarships that, that basically focus on identifying libertarian African-American students uh, to advance into their network. Um, but uh, the other part that Coke has been funding has been a media operation, media fellowships. And it's one of the main, been one of the main funders of Tucker Carlson's uh, nonprofit uh, group uh, through the Daily Caller news operation that he uh, helped launch. Um, and so um, there are efforts to trace it. Jane Mayer, obviously, in her um, breakthrough book, Dark Money, you know, really helped do the first major uncloaking of that. Other organizations like Greenpeace, you know, Desmog, Blog, uh, Sourcewatch, Senior for Media Democracy, my organization that I'm president of, um, have played a key role in uh, exposing them. But um, uh, Anna, to, your, to, to answer your question more succinctly, there's no one-stop shopping that details all of those groups. We tried to capture some of that at cokedocs.org, one of my sites, but that's a site that's in uh, the building phase and hasn't uh, really mapped everything out. Um, but there's a lot more to be done to really see what's going to happen. Uh, host Charles Koch, his brother died uh, two years ago. Um, he's older now and apparently in very good health, but he is not the type of leader who's, uh, who's, who's left who's not leaving behind a structure. He's left behind one of the deepest, uh, most widespread structures for advancing his agenda from beyond the grave that I've ever seen of any uh, rich person uh, in the United States. Um, and on that point, I just want to conclude uh, by saying one of the things that I think historians may observe looking back on this period after the fact is how some of these billionaires have become, have created sort of a post state political environment. They're not really aligned to the um, sort of native or the uh, structures or processes of, of the country in which they made their fortune. They attempt to transcend laws of countries. Countries, many countries have less uh, less wealth than Charles Koch. Um, they are sort of countries unto themselves and their alliance toward this um, uh, anarcho-capitalist view of the world, you know, sort of transcends national boundaries. And as Nancy documented so compellingly, they've been at this for many, many years to try to uh, transform other countries' constitutions to limit their ability to regulate corporations. Okay, that's just, we're getting... Uh, 
we're getting the knowledge and the education of uh, this rigged um, fascist overpowering uh, with money uh, to end democracy. That kind of education, that's what's going on. And yes, we can. And Rainbird, you have this emerald serpent feathered one's talking stick. Yes, Lord Katumi is with us, uh, <coughs> Quetzalcoatl, and here it comes. All right, I got that. Oh, so thank you. I just really love listening to her, so that was good. That was really good. Yeah. Yes, the goddess all these is here. I <laughs> oh, yeah, well, we got this afternoon. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I got this afternoon. You can answer some more questions. <laughs> yeah, so lots of gratitude. And uh, sounds like you had a really good birthday. And we got to initiate our our first show on BBS Radio Station One. So that's a birthday gift. <laughs> what amazing! So of- that that's amazing. It really is. Yeah, it really is. So congratulations and uh, and lots of gratitude for your life. So I pass this talking stick over to you, Rama. Here it comes. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Here we go. This is Alan Watts. What is it to see? Paper cup. 
and you go into the nature of what it is to see, what vision is, or what smell is, or what touch is, you realize that that vision of the paper cup is the brilliant light of the cosmos. Nothing could be brighter. Ten thousand suns They are hidden in the sense that all the points of the infinite light are so tiny when you see them in the cup. They don't blow your eyes out. But it is actually, see, the source of all light is in the eye. If there were no eyes in this world, the sun would not be light. You evoke light out of the universe. In the same way, you, by virtue of having a soft skin, evoke hardness out of wood. Wood is only hard in relation to a soft skin. It's your eardrum that evokes noise out of the air. You, by being this organism, call into being the whole universe of light and color and hardness and heaviness and everything, you see. Well, now here's the problem. If this is the state of affairs, which is so, and if the, the consciousness state you're in at this moment is the same thing as what we might call the divine state, if you do anything to make it different, it shows you don't understand that it's so. So the moment you start practicing yoga, or praying, or meditating, or indulging in some sort of spiritual cultivation, you are getting in your own way. If you think you have a problem, see, that you're an ego, that you're indifferent, the answer that the Zen master makes to you is show me your ego. I want to see this thing that has a problem. See, because when you look for your own mind, that is to say your own particularized center of being, which is separate from everything else, you won't be able to find it. But the only way you'll know it isn't there is if you look for it hard enough to find out that it isn't there. So everybody says, all right, know yourself, look within, find out who you are. Because the harder you look, you won't be able to find it. And then you'll realize that it isn't there at all. There isn't a separate you. Your mind is what there is. Everything. Okay, everybody, we don't have time for the music, but uh, thank you so much to the brother here that Rama spent a lot of time listening to while you were growing up, right? Yeah. All right. So um, thank you so much, everyone, on this station one. And we have a show tomorrow, and it's back on station two, which you might be interested. And it starts at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. And it goes all the way through to this time again, which would be uh, (laughs) uh, 11.30 Eastern at night to uh, 2.30 in the morning (laughs) Eastern. And we do this, and we've been doing this for 12 years, come this December 10th now with BBS Radio. Welcome, everyone. It's the true history of Nassara tomorrow and our galactic history. So that links a whole nother field. We're talking about fifth dimension. Here we come. And 
the solution to all that's going on here. S-O-U-L. And that's got, got some practical applications and the Sara now. And namaste, everyone. See you this afternoon. <laughs> Aloha.